Welcome. I am your host, Manpreet, a.k.a. MMA Lock of the Night, and your boy on Twitter at MMALOTN. Joined, as always, by my Canadian brother, Cody Saftik. You guys can follow him at CJ Saftik on Twitter. And we are here propping you up for UFC Vegas 29, headlined by the Korean Zombie and Dan Ige, a pivotal featherweight scrap, and another shot for Dan Ige to go out there and try to notch a win in his second-ever main event slot. A couple other intriguing fights, not to mention Old Man Olenek in the Coleman event slot against Sergei Spivak. Cody, I know this card is interesting, uh, you know, quote unquote, but is there any other fight that's really jumping out the page to you that you're really excited to watch this weekend? Yeah, okay. So first of all, we're coming off a crazy good pay-per-view where quite yeah. literally the entire card, top to bottom, was interesting, intriguing, tons of fight of the night contenders. So yeah, the uh, the afterburn, <laughs> the uh, hangover, it's, uh, it, it's certainly real here. But Again, we're we're huge fight fans, so there's always those little nuggets. But Rick Glenn, four-year-long layoff up a weight class, like cool to see him come back. Interested in that. Josh Prezen versus Roque Martinez. I'm gonna lean on you here, brother, because you are the fat white guy whisperer. I got that. something for you. We got it. Some titties on display here, my friend. So that one's gonna be fun. Semmelsberger versus Chaos Williams. You ever seen a bad Chaos Williams fight? Semmelsberger is a guy that's gonna force the hand. So those fights are all fight to me. Matt Brown, you know whether he's this version of Matt Brown, I'm always interested in seeing. Um, and then, yeah, the main card's got some fun fights on it, right? The Marlon Vera, David Grant rematch. Not a rematch anybody cared with, but going to be a fun fight. And then Alexei Olenek, like, again, I, I hate to see these guys at this stage, but I'll still take it. And so, yeah, for, for a hardcore fight fan, great spots. But last week, I loved a lot of these props. Tons of great uh, lines. Um, really fun card. One miss on Jamahal Hill, both on the money line side of things. And even on the props, you know, we gave away our, our, our best props. And outside of the Hill by TKO, you know, we had... Peterson versus Hooper go the distance. That one the distance. We had Brad Riddell score a plus 260 um, decision prop. That was great. And even at the end of the show, we said, if you didn't like the Riddell by decision prop, you can go with the Leon Edwards by decision prop, plus 165. That hit as well. So you, you know me probably better than anybody on terms of a gambling standpoint. And uh, I love me some overs. So there was 12 fights last week, and nine of them went to distance. So that, that was all well and good. Is this card nearly as exciting? No. So instead of taking up two hours of your time, maybe, <laughs> maybe we'll only go for one tonight. Yeah, we had 14 fights to break down last week. This time we only got 12. We had 13, but Tim Means uh, and Daddy Roberts fell off. Tim Means is fighting next week against Nicholas Dalby, who also lost his opponent. So 12 fights this time around, and we'll be sure to try to keep it as concise and efficient as possible for you guys. And right off the bat, as I always remind you guys, make sure you guys hit that like, hit that subscribe, and obviously go check out Cody's channel as well. The link is in the description below. Go give my man a subscribe over there because he's dropping some PFL, some Bellator, and all that hotness for you guys to go out there and, uh, and check out these previews. So let's not waste any more time. Let's get this shit going. First and foremost, we got Lara Procopio going up against Casey O'Neill. In terms of odds, we got minus 160 now on Lara Procopio and plus 140 on Casey O'Neill. And it seems like gradually the love is coming in on Procopio this week as you see the lines start to climb and climb. I'm seeing some people that were able to better at that even money line earlier in the week. Now she's up to minus 160. So they're getting some good CLV. And Procopio will always have a spot in my heart cashing as a solid underdog or a, a slight underdog underdog against Molly McCann last time around. Uh, you know, I, I still don't understand what people saw in Molly McCann, but luckily that Procopio was able to go out there and get that uh, win, mainly with grappling. Now with Casey O'Neill, you're getting a fighter that goes out there and grapples herself, right? She's not a black belt like Procopio, but she is a purple belt, and she's quite aggressive. She's training out of a Extreme Couture over the last year or so. Um, had some time over there at Tiger Muay Thai. Um, has some solid training partners and some good things to to like about her. She's 6-0. and 0. 
but she's still very young, 23 years old, uh, was mainly fighting on the Australian fight scene, and I believe Eternal MMA. And if I'm not mistaken, her father actually owns that company. So she was getting a lot of like, let's be honest, cupcake matchups, for instance. But uh, on the other side, Procopio, she had a pretty strenuous uh, regional scene uh, run before coming to the UFC. And even though she went undefeated, she went up against some decent uh, regional competition, especially, Mar uh, I believe her name is uh, Mariana Marais. She's one of those girls that is pretty much doing all the jobs for all the freaking uh, the up-and-coming Brazilian fighters. Uh, that, uh, Sydney Hocha, I think, was another one that she was able to beat on the regional scene before she ended up making it to the UFC. Everything for some reason points towards Procopio, like in terms of black belt and jujitsu. Uh, seems like the technically better striker. Even in a fight with Carl Hosa, where she was getting outstruck, she showed great heart, great grit moving forward, and still throwing a solid amount of strikes in her own right. But I still feel for some reason at this level of MMA, the aggression and possible strength advantage that Casey O'Neill will have here could cause Procopio some issues. I don't think Procopio is this crazy black belt like a Mackenzie Dern or a Verna Janderoba or anything like that, uh, which is why I don't think she'll have. Uh, She'll be as successful off of her back, which is where I think Casey O'Neill will put her. And if Procopio wants to get the takedown, I don't really believe in her takedown game as much. And I think that Casey O'Neill might be able to just strength or muscle herself back to her feet and then uh, really start to put the whooping on uh, Procopio. Very tough fight for me. I am ultimately leaning on the O'Neill side, if you guys can already tell. And I'm actually going to be taking the, the, the decision prop here. Uh, Casey O'Neill to win by decision is currently sitting at plus 295. That's a spot that I like. I do believe that this is going to go all 15 minutes. Both girls are quite durable. Only one loss between them. Uh, but we still need to see a lot more of these girls before we can truly give a solid uh, breakdown of what they truly bring to the table, especially the Casey O'Neill side considering the lack of competition she's been fighting en route to the UFC. But I think O'Neill has a bright future, only 23 years old. Procopio, only 25 years old. So we should be able to see some solid progression from both women this weekend. But ultimately, I'm going to be going with the Australian Scottish chick, uh, Casey O'Neill, and I'll take her by decision, plus 295. How are you seeing this one, brother? Yeah, honestly, I don't disagree whatsoever. On paper, it looks like Lara Procopio's got her beat everywhere. First of all, she's got the experience. As you mentioned, she fought better level on the on the uh, regional scene. I was already made her UFC debut. As you know, put together a, a decent little run. That fight with Carl Rosa was crazy good because I'm very high up on Carl Rosa. And you got Procopio coming in. She's known as a BJJ black belt. She's known for a ground game. She's not known for striking in the slightest sense. And chin checks out, volume checks out, output, pace, everything really. She loses a close split decision. Definitely lost that fight, my opinion. Uh, but again, gave a good account of herself. And when you look at the numbers, she lands like 160 significant strikes. You know, that's going tit for tat. So now they book her in the Molly McCann fight. You might remember this, but Molly McCann opens up as like a three to one favorite. Like a, a size nonsense, and the money starts to pour in on Procopio. <laughs> you and I both, we both lock her in as an underdog of the week, and then she actually ends up going off as a slight favorite, and again goes and delivers. But one has to wonder: she gets seven takedowns over uh, Molly McCann, and again Molly is able to work her way back up to the feet. So the same thing presides in this O'Neill matchup that maybe she goes and gets the takedowns, but O'Neill's jiu-jitsu is good enough to defend off the ground and hopefully work her way back up. Procopio's got better volume, and O'Neill's really not much of a striker herself, but I just keep wondering, if O'Neill secures these takedowns and ends up on top, Procopio's good enough to defend, uh, O'Neill's st very strong, good top control, and if she holds her down and she makes this a, you know, a tough night for her, then she can definitely squeak up a couple of these rounds and make it, things look good for the judges. Coming off that Hooper fight last weekend, mind you, did not have Hooper, you know, we were on uh, the Steve Peterson that side, but... The same, I compared him to Jordan Leavitt. I did get burned on Jordan Leavitt. And that's what that, that's why I was like, I'm not doing this again with Hooper. And I kind of do get feelings of that with Casey O'Neill. They're, they're so young. She's 23 years old. 
She's six and zero. She has no experience, and now she's fighting under the bright lights of the UFC against a credible opponent who's out of a good camp, who's a BJJ black belt, who's already fought a good girl like Laura Procopia. Even Molly McCann, people like to shit on her, but she's a former Cage Warriors champion. She's versatile. You know, she could box a little bit. She could not really defensively grapple, but again, you know, a somewhat well-rounded fighter. Those are solid victories for Procopio. So she's got a, the advantage in striking, the pace, experience. You would kind of lean towards giving her the advantage in the ground game as well. What's there to like about Casey O'Neill? But I, I, I get this feeling at the like the pit of my stomach that if I go Procopio, especially if I lock in Procopio as like a significant play and put some faith in her, that uh, O'Neill's just going to trip this fight to the ground. You know, stall her up against the cage, get her to the ground, hold some top control, and squeak one out. So the prop that I'm looking to attack this, it, it ain't pretty really, but it's the minus 240 fight goes the distance. If O'Neill has her way, gets Procopio down, Procopio's super durable, man. She's not going anywhere. I don't think she gets submitted. I certainly don't think she gets knocked out. So O'Neill's path to victory would be use the takedowns to secure a decision. Whereas Procopio, you know, she, she can land her best punches on you, but she's not a big power puncher. And again, mm -hmm. going back to that submission game, I don't think she submits O'Neill. She couldn't submit Molly McCann. I mean, I don't think O'Neill's going to be a walk in the park. She could break her late, take her to some deep waters. And O'Neill has lost twice as an amateur, undefeated as a pro but has two losses as an amateur, both of them by first-round knockout. I don't think she can take a great punch, but if this ends up being two grapplers grappling for the better part of 15 minutes, again, it's going to be another decision. So I don't actually like the props on this fight. If you take Procopio, maybe try to juice it better by taking the decision. If you got O'Neal, you already got good dog money. So, like, you know, why get greedy and go with that O'Neal by decision? Although I could see someone like me doing something like that. But the fight goes the distance 240. Yeah, it's not pretty. It's not a great price, but that would probably be the safe way of attacking this one. Yeah, I do definitely see this fight going the full 15 minutes, and I expect it to be a grappling fest back and forth. That's pretty much that's what O'Neill does from the get-go. All right, let's move on to the next fight here. This fight I'm very much looking forward to. I can't wait to hear what your thoughts are on it as well. We got Joachim Silva and Ricky Glenn. Yes, I said Ricky Glenn because he wants to change his name for all of a sudden, but apparently the story behind it, I watched this interview with James Lynch's. His name initially was Ricky, and then when he was a little, when he was a little kid, his father's girlfriend's name was Ricky as well. So so he said, fuck it, I'm just going by Rick now. And now that he's back in his hometown of Des Moines, Iowa, he's going back to Ricky because if you guys remember, he was training over there at Team Alpha Male in Sacramento. In terms of how these guys match up, like I said, uh, Glenn closer to a three-year layoff and uh, Silva closer to a two-year layoff. And uh, I believe Glenn had to go through a hip surgery during his time off. Uh, he was scheduled to fight Carlton Minus back in December. Uh, him and his coaches end up getting COVID. They pull out. He said he was waiting for a short notice call in January, February. That did not end up transpiring. And then he actually ended up having his first ever child. And then he took a little bit of a paternity leave, if you want to call it that. But now he's back in it in June uh, now, going up against a very stiff test and Joaquim Silva. One thing also to note about Ricky Glenn is that he's going up to 155 pounds. Uh, if you guys remember, he did miss weight by two and a half pounds last time around against Kevin Aguilar. And that was definitely not a good look in a fight that he especially ended up losing. Now it's weird. We kind of know Rick Glenn from like the score fighting series days, right? He went out there and beat up on a couple of our Canadian boys back in the day but his style never seems to change right it's really that guy that's marching forward trying to sock you uh maybe not the most technical striker but he puts that pace and pressure on you that can break fighters more often than not but then you see fights like the miles jury fight the evan dunham fight even the uh the last fight against kevin aguilar all these fighters are winning off of their back foot they're getting pushed back the entire time but ricky glenn leaves such openings for themselves for himself that the other fighters are able to take advantage, land the bigger, more impactful strikes, you know, hurt him, rock him, drop him, whatever it may be. 
and he is hella durable, but ultimately that's that's going to catch up to him. And especially coming up here now, uh, fighting a very vicious and, and ferocious striker like Joaquim Silva, I don't think it's any good news for Ricky Glenn. I think he's going to uh, succumb to some punches here by Silva. Silva, I, I do like his style, right? He's very, uh, I believe he's in a value style tie guy down there. Um, and I think that he has the power to actually give Ricky Glenn a ton of trouble here. I think that this, uh, one of my buddies, I, I want to say Z, if he's still in the chat, shout out to Z. He, um, uh, he actually put out the, the fight doesn't go to decision, which is around like plus 180 or something like that. Even though under two and a half is around like plus 200, it might've gotten steamed at this point in time. It might be lower now, but I could see this fight being an all out war where both guys are having a lot of success. I ultimately think it's going to be Silva that lands the bigger, better strikes and it's going to land on the chin of uh, Glenn. And I think Glenn's going to topple over sooner or later, probably in the second round, later in the second round here. So it's not a good look that Kevin Aguilar, uh, who is an inch shorter than Joaquim Silva, was having as much success as he would having against Ricky Glenn. I expect Joaquim Silva to have the same success. And the last thing I'll say about Silva, not just a headhunter, he's really digging to the body. And a lot of people are saying that this guy has a uh, cardio issues and he falls off in the third round, but he won the third round against Vince Michelle. He finished Jared Gordon in the third round. And I truly believe that he probably deserved the decision against Vince Michelle. I thought he won the first round. You go back and look at MMA decisions. The vast majority of people actually gave it to Silva and uh, yeah, close fight, but I truly thought he, that he won rounds one and three. So if we take that one off, he only has one loss in his record, and that's knockout by Nazareth Hackpress. And that's not, you know, you can't be too mad at that. The guy has a ton of power. That was a beautiful finishing sequence as well in terms of faking the straight and coming over his guard with the right hand. Uh, but ultimately, I think the power, the striking is going to be too much for Ricky Glenn. And I think that Joaquim Silva actually finishes him probably in the second round. So in terms of props, I'm going Silva by KO, which is at plus 510, which is absolutely crazy, as most people probably expect this fight to go to a decision. And I get it, Ricky Glenn has only gone to the decisions inside the UFC. The guy's only getting older. He keeps getting clipped. He keeps getting hurt. And Joaquim Silva has that power to put his lights out. So I'm going Silva and Silva by knockout at plus 500. Reel me back in if I'm too high on Joaquim Silva right now. How are you feeling about this fight? Yeah, I'm going to agree with a lot of the assessments. The one thing, again, shout out to Z, my man, but I, I kind of see the fight going the distance the other way. So Rick Glenn has six fights in the UFC and all six fights have gone to decision. He also has never been knocked out in like 28 career fights and has fought in a lot of bangers. So yeah, he got knocked down by Kevin Aguilar. But outside of that, dude, the guy's known for his cast iron chin and his durability. Flip side to that, he hit Gavin Tucker with 145 significant strikes and pretty much bodied him and still did not get the job done. So Rick Glenn, kind of a decision guy himself. Again, he is durable and he's not really big for power. He's more of a submission guy. I don't really see him submitting Joaquin Silva. So again, we should be banking in some rounds, I would think, you know, at the very least, we're going to be banking some rounds here. Flip side to it, it's not necessarily that we're looking at, okay, well, Ricky Glenn is the guy that's the decision guy. Joaquim Silva ain't the decision guy. So I get attacking it from that angle. This dude just attacks with such ferocity. Everything he throws is, you know, from the hip and got absolute, you know, fight ending power in it. So when you got a guy that's marching you down, throwing with kind of reckless attention, yeah, he's a disaster for a... Uh, for betting a fight to go the distance prop but again when you look at the guys that are he's finishing fights with jared gordon has an inability to move his head and that fight is hectic for the first 10 minutes anyways jordan jared gordon's actually winning the fight uh really good fight he, he takes everything but the kitchen sink and eventually topples him over and then you know nazareth hackcross is a is a top prospect so again this is not to me not the end of the world uh, i think he's fighting some legitimate guys what worries me here more than anything is the layoff for both men i mean you got joaquin silva hasn't fought since 2019 um, he's been dealing with a little bit of, you know, personal issues, some some injuries, all that regard. 
and then Ricky Glenn hasn't fought in almost four years. When he was fighting in the UFC initially, he uh, worked at a Costco. And he, yeah. I remember when he signed with the UFC, he was, they were like, oh, you can finally leave your job at the Costco. And he's like, nah, nah, I'm still going to work that. Like, uh, you know, I've got to make money while I'm in training. So it's like, oh, pretty crazy. The last four years, he's not been fighting. He, he got a trade. He's a plumber now. And, I mean, he's got a family. He's got a kid. He's got a, he's got a full-time profession. He has not fought in four years. Like, that's all stuff that's insurmountable to overcome. But, you know, we see this time and time again. Guys that haven't fought in a long time. So we write them off on the basis of just, like, oh, it's a ton of ring rust. But you don't really know what they've been up to in that time off, right? Rick Lennon is a guy that did have great volume, did have great output, and does march you back. So with Joaquin Silva, even though he's very difficult to move back, and certainly he's not a guy that fights off his back foot very often. If Rick Glenn is able to, you know, get on him early, pressure him early, and maybe fatigue him on his own layoff, then who knows? Silva's 32, and the way he throws, he's going to leave himself open to getting finished late. You know, he'll be, he'll, oh, I, I know what you're saying, cardio not really a problem. Knocks out Jared Gordon in the third, the Vince Michelle fight not bad. But again, I think if you put a hectic pace on this guy, he will start to wear, and that's where Glenn would become live. Regardless, I am going with Joaquin Silva. Again, the layoff for me personally, too much to overcome. But I actually looked at this as a fight goes the distance, another one. Um, it's minus 195. Because of the long layoff on both guys, that's too much for me personally. But that was the prop that I liked that out of any of the props. And I put two asterisks next to it on my list here because of all the props that we had to decide on all the fights, this one I actually do not like. I just don't really care for the prop. The one I got is fight goes the distance, but at minus 125, don't like it as much. The last fight, we got a fight goes the distance, 240. It's even worse. That I like, you know, that's probably going the distance. This is you got a banger against a guy who's a plumber who hasn't fought in four years. But again, I go back to his durability. I mean, Rick Glenn's just a guy that don't go away quietly. It's going to take a, you know, a Herculean effort to take him out of there. And Joaquin Silva's capable of it, but I don't see, personally, I don't see it going down that way Saturday. Yeah, I think it's going to be fireworks regardless, whether it's a finish or the full 50 minutes. I believe these guys are going to swing some leather. Uh, and I, th I think uh, another thing for Silva also is if he does get taken down here, I think it could be an issue for him. But Ricky Glenn only has a 13% takedown accuracy rate. I don't think it's actually going to end up happening. I think we'll see Silva keep this fight on the feet. Not to mention the, the going up and wait for uh, uh, Rick Glenn as well. He's going to have to deal with some strength uh, differential as well. And I believe that Joe Kim Silva will do a good job in terms of keeping this fight on the feet. All right, let's move on to the fight that we all been waiting for. We got my guy Josh Parisian going up against Roki Martinez in terms of odds. We currently got Parisian around minus 140, plus 120 on Roki Martinez. First and foremost, over one and a half, minus 200. I don't mind that chalk. Uh, Roki Martinez, very durable. Only times he's really been finished as of late. Romanov by submission, but pff, Josh Parisian is far from an Alexander Romanov. And then obviously that uh, cut stoppage back in Risen against Miracle Krokop. Let's be honest, that, prob that fight probably could have continued as well, but it's Miracle Krokop in Japan. They're probably going to do whatever they can to give that guy a dub. But Roki Martinez, very tough uh, stint so far in the UFC. 0-2, obviously losing to uh, Alexander Romanov um, via via submission, getting ragdolled in that fight. You can't really blame him for losing the fight the way that he did. And then the Dante Mays fight. I Pretty much Dante Mays sticking a move in the entire time. It seemed like the momentum was starting to shift in that uh, closer to the ending of that third round. Luckily for uh, Dante Mays, the, the bell ends up going and he takes home a decision victory. Now with Josh Parisian, you're getting neither of those types of approaches here with Roki Martinez. It seems like Parisian is almost like a, a KO or a bust type of fighter. You got to get it done early or it's going to get a little bit iffy. Just like my guy Parker Porter was able to put him through the rinker in uh, rounds two and three of their last fight. I find it difficult to believe that Parisian is going to be able to stiff Roki Martinez here. The only 
scenario I can imagine where that happens where he actually gets an early TKO is if he gets an early takedown, gets into full mount, and goes Donkey Kong ham on this guy. But we've saw uh, King Kong himself do the same thing to Roque Martinez. Martinez does a good job in terms of covering up and continuously bucking his hips to keep his opponent uh, unstable on top, which allows him to survive even longer and longer. And we obviously know that Mr. Uh, you know Josh Breeson doesn't have the greatest gas tank. And then if this fight gets out of the first round, that's where we'll start to see the striking of Roque Martinez really start to slow down uh, Josh Breeson. Not to mention the... Um, the, the ability to push him up against the cage, have some cage control, maybe even land a takedown or two of himself. I think that Martinez can start to pull away later in this fight. So the spots that I like, I said right off the bat, uh, um, over one and a half minus 200, even over two and a half plus 100, and fight goes to decision at plus 130. I like all those spots. I think this is going to be a sloppy, heavyweight slugfest for as long as it lasts. I think both guys are going to show good cardio. I don't think Roki Martinez has crazy knockout power, but I do think that he'll be able to push this fight to at least to, to, to the 15th minute and i think we'll see martinez get the better of parisian in rounds two and three and take home a decision so i'm actually going martinez by decision at plus 355 that's a spot that i really like in this fight as i do think that he'll be able to survive that early barrage and then start to put him on it later uh how are you feeling about this one am i am i giving titties too much uh to too much uh credence here or do you think that parisian puts him out early Dude, I can 100% see your angle. I think that Roki Martinez is going to have a lot of success backing him up. And again, you go back to the Parker Porter fight. Porter's a short, a shorter, you know, stockier, stout man. He has lots of success backing up Josh Parisian. For a guy that's six foot four and a big old reach, he does not use it particularly well. He does not fight from the outside particularly well. And again, a smaller man can back him up and have a lot of success. So I agree, Roki should be able to do that. But this is where I'll play devil's advocate. I got fight going the 15 minutes as well, but I'm going to go the other side and take up Parisian. So Parisian's last fight versus Parker Porter goes the full 15 minutes. His cardio looked awful. Keep in mind, the fight before that, Chad Johnson, first round finish. Before that, Marcus Molding, first round finish. Before that, second round finish, first round finish, first round finish, first round finish, lost in the first round, lost in the second round, first round finish, first round finish, lost in the second round to Tony Lopez, what? Uh, and then he won a decision, a, a majority decision. That was four years ago. So here's the thing with Josh Parisian, because he's been fighting limited competition on the regional scene, he walks right through them. He hasn't had to go 15 minutes, and then when you do see him have to go 15 minutes against Parker Porter, he gasses out. But again, that's good for him. He hadn't been 15 minutes in a long time, so now coming back into this spot, I would expect his cardio to be a little bit better. He's tested those waters, he's had to go there. He's also only 31 years old, so one would assume that for heavyweight, he's still just a baby. He still will make some improvements, I would think. Now again, looking at the Parker Porter fight, Parker Porter lands 126 significant strikes with the two takedowns. Meanwhile, Josh Parisian lands 114 largely off of his back foot. That's great volume, man. I mean, yeah, did he get tired? Absolutely. Did he lose the fight? Yes, he did. But to land 140, uh, 114 significant strikes largely off your back foot as a heavyweight is huge. When you look at Roque Martinez, where's his volume at? You know, like his fight with Dante Mays largely played on the feet. He was not able to track him. He lands 58. It's half the number. He's a real short small reach, comes up short in a lot of his punches. And the thing that killed me in the Dante Mays fight is that he takes two rounds to even start get going. Like he just waits far too long. Now Mays is six foot seven. He's actually really mobile for heavyweight and has a long jab on him. So difficult, a lot more difficult to track down than, than Josh Parisian certainly. But yeah, I got a feeling that Josh Parisian, bigger man, again, as most people are against Roque Martinez, is going to be able to use his striking, use that volume and keep him at bay. Keep him, uh, probably just land more shots, if not the better shots, and hopefully that's enough to uh, to wow to wow the judges. When you look at Roque Martinez, we can give him a pass on his two UFC losses. Shit, Dante Mays is six foot seven and a boxer, hard to track down. Alexander Romanov, you know, a 
big old power wrestler from Moldova, you know, you give him a pass. But all the wins, man, they're freak show fights. He beats Hideki Sakai, who's 47, and looks like Shrek, like physically, you know, he's, he's definitely on the gas. Uh, Mizuguchi, come on. If anybody's yeah. familiar with Mizuguchi, they know what's up. He loses to Jay Kuhn, who's a natural middleweight, who campaigns at 205, sometimes at heavyweight. Ryo Sakai, like what? Loses to Krokop, as he should. Beats an 11-10 and 10 opponent. Beats my boy Jerome LeBanner and Jay Deep Side. Those guys are legit. Both guys are pro kickboxers. And Krokop's also a pro kickboxer. And he had also fought... Fuck, he fought another pro kickboxer along the way. He's fighting mostly pro kickboxers and doesn't actually really look good against them. If he does get Parisian on the ground, he should be able to smother. But I think Parisian's just going to get back up. Or hopefully more likely than not, not get taken down and just work this guy. Anyways, you, you could be right in your assessment of Roke backing him up, maybe getting some takedowns. I, I'm hoping I'm right on the assessment. Parisian's gas tank's a little bit better. He lands the, the more significant strikes. But either way, dude, we're on the same page with this fight goes the distance. Fight goes yeah. the distance is plus 130. So... Parisian has a lot of those first-round finishes, second-round finishes. I listed them off in the regional scene, but he's, he's fought a lot of soft competition, right? Against Parker Porter, who's not really known for his chin durability. Like, everything he hit, Parker took. Roque Martinez is pretty durable, so I feel confident that Roque would be able to take Parisian's best shots. In a Parisian victory, he probably settles for the volume and the decision. In a Roque victory, you know, maybe he mixes in that takedown. Maybe he lands a few shots, but, but like you alluded to, not the biggest power puncher guy himself. And we just saw Parisian get beat up for 15 minutes, get hit by a ton of shots from Parker Porter, get taken down by Parker Porter. That same game plan that Roke should be able to use if he's going to win, and it yielded a decision. So the plus 130, as far as the decision goes, we should be covered on the side. I like it. And then if I am going Parisian, and I got that Parisian by decision, plus 325 on a Parisian by decision, I just need him to outwork Martinez, stay the outside the best he can, get back up if he gets taken down. But at plus 325, like uh, I, I, I'm going to have a little sprinkle at that. For sure, this this is going to be a slop fest. I, I'm mm -hmm. telling you, it's it's going to go either way. Um, but I do like the Martinez side. Let's see how that ends up panning out. <clears throat> Excuse me. All right, let's move on to the next fight. This one I'm very much intrigued by. We got Matt Semmelsberger going up against Chaos Williams. We got minus 155 on Williams, plus 135 on the semi, the Jedi, uh, Matthew Semmelsberger. Uh, over one and a half, minus 150, a spot that I don't mind. That's the spot that I really like here. Um, Chaos Williams is definitely one of those guys that like he can turn your lights out at any point, right? Ask Abdul Razak Al Hassan, ask Alex Morono. But Michelle Pereira went out there and put on a great performance in terms of just staying away from the big power of Chaos and just getting his uh, shots going. And then uh, later on in the fight, was starting to land takedowns to make Chaos Williams think even more. And that's what you want to do. You kind of want to over overpower the circuit of Chaos Williams in terms of making him think about what the hell you're going to be doing so that he's a little bit too tentative in terms of throwing his strikes. I feel like Samuelsberger will be able to do something like that where he has great combinations, good in and out movement, great leg kicks, uh, decent height. I think he's six foot one. He has a one inch height advantage over Chaos Williams, but that definitely will help in terms of uh, using his kicks to kind of keep Chaos Williams on the outside. And then whenever uh, Chaos Williams loads up and throws his big strikes, uh, Samuelsberger should be able to either duck on get a takedown wrestling is actually his first uh martial art that he ever trained but more often than not you see him striking now but you'll definitely see him pull out that singlet for this fight against chaos williams because you don't want to be going strike for strike with chaos williams um i think semi the jedi has a little bit more upside than what chaos williams bring to the table like chaos is an athletic specimen let's be honest right but i still truly believe that he's a He's a KRO bus kind of guy. He does have a couple decision victories on his record, but we all know about Tony Hervey and, and Jeremy Holloway and what they bring to the table. 
and some of the mistakes that they were making later on in that fight that allowed Chaos Williams to get the W that night. The more higher of a step up that Chaos Williams continues to take, the less mistakes his opponents are going to make. But we still haven't realized or figured out where exactly Samosberger falls into place or, or where we can categorize Samosberger with the rest of the competition that Chaos Williams has been fighting. We'll definitely find that out this weekend. But I do like Samosberger, man. I think he'll be able to stay away from the big shots. And I'm not sold on the sustainability of the knockout power of Chaos Williams. And what I mean by that is... All of his knockouts have come in the first round outside of one of them. One of them came in the second round, uh, and it was... Um uh, again, it was the second ever pro MMA fight, and it was against a guy that was two and five. Yeah, you know I mean, it just goes to show that it was more so building this, um, building Chaos Williams up because he's going out there and starching these guys, and he looks like a great product, and obviously made it to the UFC. So they succeeded in building this product to get to the UFC. But I think that Samuelsberger, he's improving on a fight-to-fight -fight basis as well. And I feel like if this fight goes the full 15 minutes, it's going to be Samuelsberger outlanding him, out-voluming him, and uh, getting his hand raised via decision. So I'm not going to uh, count out the possibility that Chaos Williams could not come out because that's absolutely possible. And that's why it's only plus 125 for Williams by KO. But the spot that I like is Samuelsberger by decision at plus 320. Uh, a lot of people are saying this under two and a half is probably a good spot here. But everything that I've seen from Chaos Williams to this point leads me to believe that he has a pretty solid chin. Like uh, he's taken some big shots from Michelle Pereira, uh, a couple shots on the early uh, on his regional scene as well. I don't think Samuelsberger hits much harder than Pereira, but uh, I'd be surprised if Samuelsberger actually knocks out uh, Chaos in this fight. So I'm going to be going Samuelsberger uh, decision. I'll point him, stay on the outside, level change, land a couple of takedowns if possible, but plus 320 for the decision prop, that's the side that I'm leaning on. Are you on the Chaos Williams side, or do you think I'm on the right side here with Samuelsberger? I'm with you on Samuelsberger. We're going to be, it's going to be a sweat, it's going to be greasy, we're going to be biting our nails the entire time, hoping that Chaos Williams doesn't dice him with that death touch, but uh, outside of that, I think Samuelsberger's got the more well-rounded game plan and, 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 and overall game. As you mentioned with the, you know, Pereira landed some hard shots on Chaos Williams, and Chaos Williams got a good chin. Semmelsberger couldn't put away Carlton Minus. I, I really don't think he's putting away Chaos Williams. What he needs to do is just work this guy over. And again, it's a pint-sized portion because we can look at the we can look at the Carlton Minus fight and say, oh, dude, look at his output there. But it's like, shit, man. It's against a really limited competition. But what I do like out of him, he's big for the weight class, big body. He's aggressive, good output, good cardio. Like you said, wrestling is his first love, and he does mix it in from time to time. And I really just think he's coming into his own, getting better, making improvements. With Chaos Williams, a lot of it's reputation. You know, he's got a crazy reputation. He comes into the UFC and nobody really knows who he is. And then he goes and he cashes, you know, a pretty legendary ticket right off the hop, knocking out Alex Morono. And he was a plus 300 underdog against Alex Morono. Knocks him out in 27 seconds. Now he gets Abdul Hassan. He's a plus 175 underdog. Again, nobody has a respect there for him. They know he's limited. They know he's fairly one-dimensional. They know his, his career on the Michigan regional scene was eh. They know he barely hustled by Jeremy Holloway. They know he barely hustled by Tony Hervey. What's there to like here? But holy shit, dude, he touches you and you are fucked. And that's exactly what happened. So he wins his first two fights, both by knockout, and now he's everybody's darling. But, you know, we were on Pereira last time, and I will give Chaos Williams one thing. He, he outstruck Pereira in that fight. He landed some good shots in that, in that fight. But he's super hesitant. So as far as the judges are concerned, he's not leading the dance a lot of the time. He's just looking to counter, and he'll start to fall behind on the scorecards if he doesn't get that knockout. When that knockout didn't yield a result against Pereira, he loses the decision. Th that's fair. If he knocks you out, you're done. With Semmelsberger, he has been knocked out by this Jerome Featherstone. It's a third-round finish. It's in yeah. 2018, late 2018, so it's not really all that long ago. 
I looked up Featherstone because I couldn't find the fight, and he is a 2-0 pro boxer, long, lanky guy, does have good striking, but all the same, you know, you're getting, you, he gets caught there, he gets knocked out. The win since then, he hits up a split decision over a name I cannot pronounce, although I'm sure the guy's tough. So Chris, <laughs> Chris Grilato, right? Richard Petitionock, you remember Petitionock, once upon a time a Gracie killer in World Series of Fighting. Uh, Carlton Minus and Jason Witt, who's got a really bad chin. None of those guys were going to hit him the way Chaos hit him. And so I'm yeah. not fully sold on his chin quite yet. And so I, I guess you could actually attack this from an under two and a half standpoint. And then if Williams hits him, he knocks him out. But if Semmelsberger wins this fight, he's going to win a decision. And I am taking Semmelsberger, and you are as well. And so for that reason, more likely than not, in my mind, if they fight 10 times, he gets hit three or four. I don't know, three times, let's say he gets knocked out. But those other seven times, he should be able to outwork him. He should be able to mix in some takedowns, press him up against the cage, use your cardio, use your output, and grind away. And the fact that they're giving you some decent dog money on him, um, I, I think it's worth taking a shot. So, yeah, the fight goes a distance. is plus 155. But again, that doesn't really cover the Chaos Williams win side of things. He probably does end this by knockout. And as you alluded to, the fact that he's only like minus 120 by knockout, the bookmaker's pretty much all, all over it. But if you want to improve Semmelsberger, you're already getting dog money on him at plus 155. But if you want to really improve that, Semmelsberger's path to victory would be that decision. And at that, it's 325. Again, similar to the Parisian fight, you know, it could be a little greasy for me, but it's 325 Parisian by decision. It's plus 320 Semmelsberger by decision. One of these guys is going to pick it up and it'll make it worthwhile for me. But uh, I, I actually agree with a lot of your points, man. We're on the same page here. The one last thing I'll actually point out is uh, I believe Crazy 88, which is the gym that Samuelsberger trains out of, is mainly a jiu-jitsu gym. And I wouldn't be surprised if uh, Samuelsberger goes out there and tries to latch on something. Plus 1,100 for the sub prop is not too bad considering that we don't I, I don't believe that Chaos Williams has much jujitsu, and uh, we don't have much to go off of in terms of to to confirm that. But just off of a hypothetical, this plus eleven hundred for a submission prop is not too shabby. Uh, over on the PFL, we did have Mister Vinny Magalay pull off a Alan Patrick, a fight not going his way. Takes the takes the easy way out. We get a no contest, and anybody that parlayed Antonio Carlos Jr., you're getting a push. So you're probably getting even worse odds. You're probably getting minus four hundred on your parlay now. Yeah, all that, it, exactly, <laughs> dude. He was the only reasonable line on the card. He's minus two twenty, right? Yeah, yeah. and it's just like it's like shit. That's pretty fair considering there's worse guys that are four to one favorites. Uh, he's a lock. I truly do believe that. Vinny hasn't. Vinny's last six wins are in the first round, and they're all by submission. So if he submits Carlos Jr. in the first round, great. Which, which by the way, ain't gonna happen. Yeah. So, so <laughs> the fight was fucking over after the first round. Two minutes in, I'm watching it. We're doing the show. I'm watching. It. Vinny's gassed. Yep. You know, Carlos Jr. didn't look great, mind you, but it was just a matter of time before he took over. Very clearly going to take over. And uh, Alan Patrick was a great example. <laughs> Alexander Romanov would be the other example, but Romanov, yep. you got to win out of that. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, yeah, I think we're going to go with the Alan Patrick. I know I'm going to lose. Uh, fuck it. I'm just going to go home. He probably got his show money for that. Yeah, absolutely. For sure. And shout out to our guy, Freddie171, asking us about the NHL playoffs. Vegas Knights are Montreal Canadiens saying, I know y'all know some hockey because we're a Canadian. I don't know about you, Cody. I don't know shit. <laughs> I just know that Montreal is the only Canadian team that has a chance to win the cup. Are you actually following the, the playoffs or what? I mean, listen, we're Canadian, right? So you end up following to a certain extent. All my time's kind of put into MMA. Exactly. Uh, and, and, and horse racing. Those are the two sports that I follow. But Montreal was not a very good Canadian team. They're, they're yeah. one of the worst teams. They're supposed to lose to Toronto, although Toronto's a terrible team. And they get by on great goaltending. So now they play the Winnipeg Jets. It's, they're still in the Canadian division. Canadian division <laughs> sucks, right? Once these guys get beyond that, then it's tough. So they beat Winnipeg, no big deal. 
Now Vegas should be able to trounce them. But one thing is their goalie's so good in Carey Price that they keep these you know, me betting the fight goes the distance is like the under in a hockey game. <laughs> <You're just> open, <laughs> nothing happens. No goals get scored. He can keep them in. I saw they won last night. It was a thrilling game, actually. Yeah. But uh, outside of that, he needs to stand on his head for them to maybe get to the finals. And in then, I think one of these tougher U.S. teams beat them. But I know people aren't here to talk about hockey. However, yeah. the Canadian in me, I know I bail on a lot of the Canadian fighters a lot of the time. Not Rory tonight, I'll have you know. Uh, Should have had Obey Mercy last night. But yeah. as far as hockey goes, uh, I know I know they're I know they're French and Toronto fans do not like them. But I, I would stick. I'm sticking with my Canadian team. So got to go with Montreal. They're they're pretty much from France according to us. So that where we don't claim them as Canadian. It is what it is. All right, let's get back to the actual fights. Go just, ahead. Go. Just so we know, they don't claim themselves as Canadians. They try to separate two times, dog. Yeah. Two times. Shut that shit down. And fuck the last one in '97. It was like a, a 51-49 vote. Yeah, <laughs> man, that was close. Could you this, imagine? Quebec, fuck. not a province in Canada, right? The thing is, is that Quebec has very little resources, and the rest of Canada has to prop them up. <laughs> similar, to, similar to what we do so quebec quebec would be absolutely wiped off the face of the map if it wasn't for uh, canada as far as i can see they need that oil money from alberta for sure uh anyways i don't want to get into politics let's talk all some right. fights all right let's get back to it we got two fights left on the prelims here but this is probably the one that i'm looking forward to the most here we got verna Janderoba going up against kanako morata in terms of odds we got plus 115 for morata and uh minus 135 for the brazilian black belt brazilian jiu-jitsu black belt verna Janderoba. and i'm fully expecting this fight to play out in a uh in a grappling realm but i think it's going to come down to morata in terms of how this fight actually plays out is she going to go out there and try to grapple fuck verna Janderoba and try to stay out of the submission attempts of verna that's a possibility or does she just use her wrestling defensively keep this fight on the feet and try to go out there and i'll strike verna Janiroba. the thing here is though both girls are pretty whatever in the striking realm right they don't stand out they don't really separate themselves in terms of who has the better striking in this fight so i'm not really sure who wins uh, the fight if it does end up staying vertical for the majority of the 15 minutes uh, but I, I do ever so slightly lean on the Murata side here. I do like her as a very slight dog. Uh, I do think her ability to kind of control where this fight takes place will allow her to win it however she sees fit, whether it's taking Verna down, uh, kind of just holding her down, like I said, or using it defensively to keep it standing up. Also, uh, there are just a couple question marks, right? Murata has one loss on the record. That comes to former UFC fighter Rin Nakai. That was, I believe, after Rin Nakai's initial UFC stint. And uh, that was also a point where uh, it was only the fifth fight for Kanako Murata. It was like the 20-something fight for Rin Nakai. And even the odds before that was like minus 350 for Rin Nakai. And if you go back and watch that fight, you see Nakai like fully ready to stuff takedowns as they come and then Murata's just like i don't know what to do i don't even know how to strike at this point in time and you see uh Rinikai, you know landing some decent strikes and there are a lot of desperation takedowns from uh Murata in that fight which ultimately allowed Rinikai to get her back at least twice and then the second time she goes out there and chokes her out in that third round um this is easily a huge step up for Murata in terms of going from Rana Marcos to Verna Jandiroba. You really have to be very and mind your P's and Q's when you're messing on the ground with a girl like Verna Jandiroba. There were some precarious positions for um, uh, Murata in her fight right before the UFC up against Emily Ducote. Ducote was able to go out there and and you know get up some solid submission attempts, but we saw the calmness, patience, and discipline from Murata in terms of just waiting uh, for her moment to explode out of those situations, and she was successful in doing so, and then obviously beating Dakota the way that she did. Um, 
Jandy Roba could have a lot of success here with the jiu-jitsu, but I feel like the heavier and stronger uh, grappler and wrestler here, Murata, that's going to shine through more so than the jiu-jitsu that Werner Jandy Roba is going to bring to the table here. The spot that I like the most, though, and you're, I'm, I'm pretty sure you're going to be with uh, with me here, is are the overs, right? Over two and a half is sitting around minus 210, minus 200. More often than not, for these women's MMA fights, you see these overs dangling around minus 300, minus 350. But when you like, if you just wiki cap this fight, you see a bunch of submissions and TKOs on both of their records. But you look deeper into those fights, and they're because they're, there's such a huge skill discrepancy between the fighters, right? Jandaroba, of course, she's going to go out there and submit Mallory Martin and Felice Herrick. And of course, uh, Kanako Murata is going to go out there and submit some of these uh, Invicta FC women. But when they fight fighters that are closer to the level of skill, like Verna Janiroba and Carlos Esparza, Verna Janiroba and Mackenzie Dern, Kanako Murata, and, you know, Randa Marcos a little bit to a certain extent. Uh, but again, Murata is not much of a submission threat. She's more so take you down, try to control you, not lay and pray, but just stay active enough that she wins that round. If the submission opens itself, she'll go for it. But I think that this is going to be one of those fights where the grappling ends up canceling each other out. But Murata is going to have the better opportunity to be in the better positions. So... Ultimately, the spot that I like the most, over two and a half. So no matter who wins this fight, uh, I expect it to go over two and a half. Um, I'm going to go with uh, Murata to win by decision at plus 175. I think that's a great line. And in case you do hit the over two and a half, I think the only way we see a finish in this fight is Jandaroba by sub, which currently sits at plus 275. So I'm, I'm, I'm going to be honest. I'm going pretty deep on the over two and a half in this spot because i do think that they're going to nullify each other and we see this fight go 15 minutes but ultimately in terms of a pick and picking a side i'm going to be going with Murata plus 175 by decision how are you seeing this one yeah again so same page i got Murata. i'm going to go with the Murata decision i got the over one and a half i got the over two and a half i got the fight goes the distance <clears throat> but this one does at least present some weariness in that Brittany Jandernova is really good off her back. She is the BJJ black belt. And not only just that, but a very good BJJ black belt. So I know you mentioned this earlier in the show. Like, it's like, oh, she's a black belt. Procopio is a black belt. But Verna Jandernova is a black belt, right? Like, she's got the submission game. And so when I look at uh, Murata, Murata's only a purple belt. So the wrestling's there all day. In fact, people just keep uh, categorizing her as a, as a wrestler. But... So her grandfather was like a world fucking judo master, right? Owned a dojo. Yeah. She started training judo at age three <clears throat> and was like a high school judo champion and judo black belt. Then transitions to wrestling and ends up becoming, uh, you know, the junior world champion. And then it has some, a lot of success in Japan. So, yeah, she's got a strong base. She's got strong hips. She's got great grappling defense. It's just the BJJ, she's still only a purple belt. And so when she is on top, she can get the fight to the ground all day long. But when she is on the top, she definitely leaves something to be desired. If you go back and you watch the fight with Emily Ducote on uh, Invicta, it's for the uh, Adam title. Sorry, for the Strawweight title, it goes five rounds. But uh, it's a split decision for Murata, and again, Murata gets the takedowns. But Ducote almost subs her like three, four times, man, like really close with these submission attempts. And that's Emily Ducote. So what's Verna Jandernova going to do in the exact, exact same spot? She's she is going to catch her. But I keep telling myself, you know, the Dakota fights almost two years ago. And Murata's very green at the time. She's a one-dimensional wrestler. But now she's starting to put it all together. Now she stays a lot safer when she gets those takedowns. You see in the Random Marcos fight, not that Random Marcos was going to be a great submission uh, threat, but it's, it's Murata that's actually looking to set up the submissions. It's Murata who's dominating. And again, when you can use that wrestling and that judo to keep the fight standing, now you can force that plan B. Let's keep this fight standing. Let's box her up. Now, can Murata strike? No. 
but can Verna Jandra Noba strike? <laughs> Not at all. And so I, I, I would say that Murata has two pass here. Use keep the fight standing, outbox her, stay at the outside. She does have the quicker hands. She should have slightly better volume. And maybe late in the round, maybe if the round's close. Maybe when you realize you're not in harm's way and you've tired her a little bit, then maybe shoot a couple takedowns. Maybe take her down just to seal it up. Press her up the cage just to seal it up. But outside of that, she should have her way. Now, mind you, Verna Jandranova did score takedowns over Carlos Esparza. That's worrisome. Yeah. The thing is, is that like their their takedowns over Esparza just props back up right away. You know, and and I would expect Murata to be a lot quicker. You know, in the scramble she should be getting up, and then in the striking, hopefully she's able to rely on it ever so slightly. But uh, but yeah, you and I are on the same page here. So the way I I, I went with it was uh the, the fight goes the distance is minus one seventy. That I don't love as much because if Murata wins, we're getting a decision. So I might as well just bet that Murata decision. But if Verna Jandranova wins, I don't know, man. It might not this we might not get a decision out of it. But that Murata prop at plus one seventy five by decision. She's more of a decision fighter. How she matches up with Verna should be more of a decision. And wrestling's been so good to us over the years that it's like I'm not I'm not bailing on it. That's the dominant art. She just really needs to mind her P's and Q's and stay out of the submission. So I'm gonna go with uh, Murata by decision as well. I like it. That makes me feel a little bit better, especially about that over two and a half, because that's a spot that I really like for this weekend. Chalky or not, it's not often that you get that type of number for a women's over two and a half. All right, let's move on to the next fight here. We got uh, Nick Negamarianu going up against Alexa Kamor. Uh, Negamarianu, we haven't seen inside the cage, I believe, since March of 2019. I could believe, uh, yeah, March of 2019, where he lost his first ever fight to Saperbeg Safarov. Uh, he made his come up through the promotion RXF. I know you're very familiar with those guys over there in Romania. We had a bunch of our Canadian guys over there fight uh, for them as well. Uh, but they pretty much fed him everybody that you probably could go out there and beat, to be honest. So I just want to quickly go over the uh, the records of the guy that Nick was able to beat in the RXF and the type of guys that they were feeding up to him. One and three, first ever fight, knocks him out in 10 seconds. Next, second fight, 0 and 0, knocks him out in 57 seconds. Next fight, 0 and 1, arm bars him in the second round. Uh, next fight, 2 and 1, finishes him two minutes into the fight, slam and punches. Next fight, three and two, Hatef Moyo, who I believe is actually fighting on PFL or uh, Bellator in the next week or so. Uh, finishes him halfway through the first round. Uh, 12 and 41, Yuri Gorbenko uh, doesn't answer the bell to go into the round three. Surprise, surprise. Uh, and then he beats, I'm not even going to try to spell uh, say this guy's name. Seven and five, finishes him halfway through the second round. Two and 15, Kalman gets your naked choke three minutes into the first round. And then our guy, Dan Konecki, 10 and 13, uh, gets Bravo choke 30 seconds into the second round. And then he finally gets a decent test, albeit Safra's not in the UFC anymore. Uh, and, he, uh, and he goes to a decision and gets pretty much wiped out in that fight with Safra breaking all the rules and then some to get the victory that night. It seems like Nega Mariano is one of those guys that goes out there and blitzes you. If he can't get you out, there, out of there, you're more than likely going to be able to beat him. But you need to be a decent talent in your own right. Luckily for Alexa Kamor, that's exactly what he is. Kamor should be able to go out there, uh, deal with the blitz attacks, the big power that Nega Mariano is going to be bringing to the table here. And he should be able to grind him out, whether it's with takedowns, as we saw, that was very successful against Nick in his last fight, or even outpointing him from distance. I think that he'll have a lot more success than what Nick is going to be bringing to the table here. So uh, I know that there's a high ceiling for Kimura, considering that he's coming out of strong style MMA. Same guys that go over there and coach heavyweight champion, or former heavyweight champion, I should say, Stipe Miocic. Um, 
let's cut him some slack. The guy's still a little bit young, right? He He's still very green, I believe. I still believe he has a lot to prove, uh, but I believe that this is a great matchup for him. There's a reason he's the biggest favorite on the card, but I do believe that he's going to go out there and grind this fight out. I do see the overs hitting here, uh, over 2.5, minus 150. I think that hits. And then fight goes to decision, minus 140. I think that hits. But the spot that I'm looking at, specific method of victory, would be Kamor to win this fight by decision at plus 135. That's the spot that I like the most. I think is going to have him covered here and i see a lot of people writing off alexa kumar because of his loss to william knight obviously that doesn't look the greatest considering how william knight just lost to daun young but you can't just write off of guy just because of that one loss look at his body of work before we start judging a guy in terms of what he brings to the table um and then if you take his body of work and compare it to nicks you completely have to go on the alexa kumar side considering he wasn't being fed tomato cans on his way to the ufc so uh, i like kumar plus 135 decision that's where i'm going to be rolling with how are you feeling about this one? Yeah, I agree, man. And I, I hate to shit on the RXF organization over in <laughs> Romania, but they've had three homegrown stars have gone from RXF to go over to the UFC. We got Diana uh, Balbita. We got Dania Dania Balbita. Yeah. My God, we got Christina Stancy, <laughs> and we got uh, Nick uh, Nick Marianu. It's like it uh, it hasn't been a good stretch. And so the biggest thing is that they fight such cans on the regional scene. They go off to nice looking records. They get signed, and the worst guy on the roster is a is a four or five time bigger challenge than what they face at this point. So they're not ready. They look way out of place, and they get beat on. He looked so unbelievably out of place in his debut uh, against Safarov. It was just like my God. Now, mind you, Sabek Safarov is a guy that has four fights in the UFC. Right? He, he's one in three. But when he loses, pretty evident. Mind you, he's fought some okay guys. But it's like he's one in three for a reason. He's missing an ACL. He lied about his age and is in his 40s. He's, extreme, he's extremely one-dimensional. And his game plan doesn't work against anybody except for Nick Marianu. Now, with Nick, it's like he was billed as a wrestler. Not only is he a Romanian fighter, but like he's a wrestler. The guy's a good wrestler, strong wrestler. You look at his regional show wins, even though low-level guys, he does take them down. He does submit them. The, the wrestle? What are you talking about? In the first round, he flopped around. He did go for a few leg locks, and Safarov just holds the cage like, oh my god, yeah. holds the cage so much. They should DQ him. They really should have. But when they didn't, they took one point. When they didn't DQ him, it, it was all downhill versus uh, for Nigger Mariano after that. He doesn't have experience going to the later rounds. He doesn't have experience at the big at the big level. And Safarov again, even though he's a limited opposition, he represented just the way by far the stiffest test that Nick had ever faced to that point. So his wrestling goes out the window. In fact, he's the one getting taken down. He gets pretty much beat up pillar to post. He takes some pretty big shots in there. One thing I'll give him, the one saving grace, because there was nothing else, is, uh, hey, guy looked actually half durable. Like he, he took Safarov's shots. He fought all the way to the 15 minutes. He hadn't really had experience in a big show. He hadn't had experience going into later rounds. And he hadn't had experience against combat Sambo champions. And yet he faced all of that and lived to tell the tale. Now, the UFC should have released him right then and there. He's not UFC caliber. He would not beat the worst guy on the roster. So he's only 24 years old. So what he needs to do is not go back to Romania, but go go to LFA, go to Bellator. Go to be honest, Bellator wouldn't have signed him. But go somewhere where you can fight better guys. Go to the Midwest regional scene. Go to the Jersey regional scene. Fight somebody to get better, and then come back to the UFC. Build your way back up. Instead, he sits on the sidelines for two and a half years, and then somehow gets a return call. So to me, it's a head scratcher why this guy's still on the roster. Although you don't. You don't want to blindly bet a guy. Listen, Yargis Danho is the same way, right? Everyone's laughing at him. They're like, man, I remember him four years ago. He's awful. But my whole thing was, is like, 
He only had four years of pro experience, and now he's been off for four years. So he's had as much time to improve as he was fighting in the first place. Can the guy make improvements? Yeah. Did he? I, I don't know. But he did win the fight. He did go out there and clip him and, and get the knockout. It's a, it's a better version of himself. With this kid, he was young. He was one-dimensional. He hadn't experienced anything. So the two and a half years on the sideline, he could have theoretically gotten better. The problem is, is that to get better, you need to do one of two things. Train at a different level with better training partners, which he has not really done. Or fight. Fight, guys. Get experience. Compete. Which he has not done. So, like, there's just not enough to, to say that you would you would confidently take him in this spot. Alexa Kamor is not a world beater at all. He's still only 6-1 and one as well. He's still very green. And on the regional scene, you know, again, he's fighting limited guys, and he relies on the knockout. When he doesn't get that first or second round knockout, he starts to fatigue, he starts to slow down, and his game falls apart. It's not just that he lost to William Knight. It's that William Knight took him down with ease. With ease. And in the third round, he's not even attempting to stop them. He's literally just toppling over to his side and getting dominated. So if Negro Mariano is not very good, but if he was a wrestler, if he could theoretically shoot a takedown, it might be good enough to take down Alexa Kaborn. However, like you said, body of work. He's training with Stipe and Cass at Strong Style Fight Team in Ohio. He's fought on Contender Series. He's got more experience in the UFC. He's at least got those 15 minutes against William Knight, who's not a slouch opponent. He does get the better striking. And, uh, you know, I just, Nick's looks such at a fish out of water that his, his only key, his only path to victory here is just cling on to dear life and hold him to the ground, which would hit a decision problem. Now, Kmore's path to victory, he's more of a finisher, but as far as the UFC goes, the fight with Justin Ledet, um, and then the last one, like, he tired in both of them, and in striking, the power doesn't really translate. So I know Nick's tough. The only thing he showed me in his debut was at least a little bit of durability. I think either side, whoever wins this fight, this thing's going the distance. So, again, you guys know me. I love betting me some decision props. But this fight to go the distance at minus 140, way better than those 3-to-1s, 2-to-1, 3-to-1s that we've already talked about. And then that Kmore by decision. Do I want Alexa Kmore at minus 400? <laughs> Not particularly. But do I want Alexa Kmore at plus money, plus 135 on the decision prop? Yeah, because, again, I don't think he knocks out uh, Nick. And I think that uh, Nick Marianu, if he is successful in slowing this thing down with his wrestling, again, we're looking to hit an over on it either side. So... Uh, of all the decision props, I actually don't mind this one. We'll talk about it at the end of the show when we talk about some of our favorite plays. Uh, I, I honestly think that Alexa Kilmore does win, but I'll be able to cover myself on both sides by taking that decision prop. And at minus 140, really not a bad price tag. I think a lot of people have anxiety trying to pronounce Nick's last name. So I don't blame you there in terms of uh, trying to be careful with that word. All right. All right. Let's move on to the next fight here. We got the main card actually coming up between Diego Lima and Matt Brown. The first fight to kick off the main card. I do want to remind you guys, please do hit that like. Please do hit that subscribe. That's the best way to do it. And then obviously go out there and show uh, Cody some love with his YouTube channel as well. Link is in the description below. So make sure you guys go and subscribe to his channel as well because i think he's closing in on a thousand are you are you close to that thousand mark yet or what i don't know if i'd say close we're over 700 and it's only been up for you're getting like there three weeks yeah yeah certainly getting there i appreciate all the support but uh yeah it's all about like content like if you take three days off you don't get no subscribers and you could put you know a video of yourself eating a banana and you'd get two or three <laughs> it's all about content it doesn't matter what the content yeah. is apparently you just gotta put stuff up so like anything it's a grind unless i hit something viral which i I gotta hit a PRP first, then uh, <laughs> then then we'll be talking. But yeah, you gotta get to a thousand to monetize it. So I, I hate asking people like, yo, subscribe to my shit. But that is part of the game. I suppose you do need all that stuff. So if you haven't uh, and you want to do so, would much appreciate. And if you already have, you demand. Thanks for the support. 
There we go. All right, let's get into this first main card fight. We got Matt Brown coming in at plus 155, going up against Diego Lima, minus 175. And he's trying to avenge his brother who just lost this past or two weeks ago against uh, Yaroslav Amazov, losing his title over there in Bellator. So hopefully he can do something good for the Lima household this weekend, going up against the aged 40-year-old Matt Brown, who's currently on a two-fight losing streak, losing to Carlos Condit and Miguel Baeza before that. And I'd say that the 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 brightest spot for Matt Brown over the last year or so was that uh, opportunity where he was close to finishing Miguel Baeza, you know, la lands a beautiful punch that even knocks the mouthpiece out of Miguel Baeza's mouth, but is just not able to follow up and finish him there. He ends up getting rocked in the same round and then finished in the following round. Um, with uh, Diego Lima coming off a very long layoff before he went out and fought Bilal Muhammad, I believe that was back in February. Uh, it seemed like he had some cardio issues. Now, I don't know if I want to tee that up to the layoff or the style of Bilal Muhammad, which is stay in your face, put you on your back foot for the majority of it, and don't let you breathe. So it could be one or the other uh, in terms of what caused Diego Lima to slow down as much as he did. He was having success with his calf, fix, calf kick, which is something that was very uh, crucial for him during that three-fight winning streak that he had before losing to Bilal Muhammad. And I think that would be very important for him to establish here against Matt Brown, who already felt it against Miguel Baeza two fights ago and clearly did not like it. So if Diego Lima can get his distance striking going, he could definitely put Matt Brown in some bad positions. Matt Brown, though, we know the thing with these fighters, right? The last thing to go is their power, and he could definitely go out there and still put some power on Diego Lima and make him, uh, you know, question why he's even in the cage. But I do still lean on the Diego Lima side ever so slightly. Do I have confidence in it? No, I have barely any conviction in this fight, but I'm not going to go out there and back Matt Brown, who's been on his last legs for the past several years, even though he was able to go out there and finish Ben Saunders and Diego Sanchez, uh, you know, right after he uh, came back from his retirement. But in terms of props, that's what you guys are here for. I'm going to go with uh, Diego Lima by decision. I don't think he's a crazy knockout puncher, though we can ask Chad Priest how that felt. But uh, Diego Lima by decision is currently sitting at plus 185. That's a spot that I like over two and a half minus 135 not too bad either um matt brown saying that this fight's going to be a bloody fight but that's pretty much what he says before every single fight and more often not it, it it comes through but you do also see most of his fights going to a decision as well at least that fight with uh carlos uh condit last time around so i'm going with lima i think he gets the better of the distance striking which is where it's going to come down to uh if he can keep matt brown off of him if he can deal with that early onslaught that he's going to have to deal with he should be able to start wearing on matt brown especially with those uh with those calf kicks that he's, like I said, he's been so successful with in the past. So I'm going to go with Lima, decision, plus 175 or plus 185. Uh, how are you feeling about this one? Am I not, am I not giving 40-year-old Matt Brown enough of a chance here? Well, here's the thing. Diego Lima just fought a week ago and lost. <laughs> Did he? <laughs> that wasn't Douglas, buddy. I'm telling you, that that looked a lot like that looked a lot more like Diego to me, bud. <laughs> um, fucking just flat, no takedown defense, barely using the jab. Power did not translate. Chalk it up to a bad weight cut, but that's how Diego fights. I'm not ever excited to bet on Diego Lima fight. I don't particularly care for his style. I don't think he's got much finishing ability. And and yeah, listen, he goes through the motions. I love me decision props, but even I can recognize one. I don't like one, and I don't like this one here. In fact, I like the under two and a half better at plus 115. You've got two sides to this, right? The one is the Matt Brown side. Matt Brown is a is a notorious finisher. He's got the power. He's got the aggressiveness. When he comes at you, like you said, the last thing to go, his speed's gone, but his power is still there. He hurts Beza, but Beza is able to recover, gets off the hook, comes back, sure. The Condit's fight boring. Now, keep in mind, 
Matt Brown's 40 years old. His, uh, he's had a bad back. He's had back surgery on it. He's had to have a bunch of rehab to come back. He's on record saying that he has short-term memory loss now. Can't remember where he puts his car keys. Uh, he's on a two-fight losing streak. His, it, 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 it's quite literally the end of the road for Matt Brown. And Matt Brown is such a junkyard dog that when you back him into the corner, he's going to come out firing. If He needs to win this fight, but beyond that, it's like this might be the last time I ever fight in the UFC. I need to go and terrorize this guy and bring it to him. Uh, his only path to victory is probably land those shots early because his cardio is gone. This guy used to fight forever. People used to drop him with the body shot, and then when he would get back up, listen, either he, he's been lost to a lot of body shots. But if he gets back up, dude, his cardio just is another level. And you look at some of those classic performances, him versus Jordan Mean, him versus Eric Silva, you know, the comebacks that he makes and the pressure that he puts on guys. But now you're seeing in the last two fights, especially the Beza the Beza fight, hurt, yes, but he gets tired. And then the Condit fight, he started out pretty okay. And then he got tired. And then he started getting out grappled by Carlos Condit. It was like mass, massive cause for concern. And here's the thing with Diego Lima. Again, this guy's not his brother. So there was a time where he was just a huge UFC write-off. Comes off the ultimate fight, he fought Eddie Truck Gordon, right, in the finals. Knocked out in a minute and 11. Then he gets Tim Means, and he gets knocked out in 217 of the first round. Then he gets Jing Liang Lin, and he gets knocked out in a minute and 25 of the first round. Three first round knockout losses, they cut him. He goes to the regional scene where he fights Jason Jackson, who knocks him out in the first round. Jason Jackson, not a power puncher, by the way, an excellent fighter. Um, but, so now he's got four first round knockout losses. Now, keep in mind, this is his run in the UFC since they brought him back. Jesse Taylor, power grappler. Yushin Okami, not even a power grappler at this point, but certainly not a knockout puncher. Chad Laprise, he caught him before he got going. Laprise is a natural 55-er. Laprise is he's done, right? He's, he's not funny anymore. Court McGee, he squeaks him on a split. Court McGee knocked him down. Luke Jumo, he squeaks out on a split. And nothing happened that entire fight. 20 significant strikes landed either side. They stared at each other. And then the Bilal Muhammad fight. Bilal, not a power puncher. Good fighter. Doubles him up easy. That doesn't put him away fair. I, I'm not fully convinced that Diego Lima's chin's all of a sudden a lot better. I just don't think he's really fought anybody that's chin-checked him. Matt Brown figures to lose this fight. But if Matt Brown can still do one thing, it's that he'll probably still come out with some, some heat and some tenacity for about seven minutes. And if he is to catch Diego Lima in one of those exchanges, he topples Lima over. Now, Lima's not a big power guy himself. But if Matt Brown does go fighting for broke, if he realizes this might be my end, I'm just like a Tom Lawler, I'm putting my gloves in the center of the cage after this is all said and done, and he goes after it, he either puts Lima away or he dies trying. And Lima would have an opportunity to catch him with something along the way, theoretically. The other thing is Matt Brown tends to be really stiff and, and flat-footed on that lead leg in particular. And Lima's got a nasty calf kick, so you could immobilize this guy over time and then maybe take him out later in the second or the third, potentially. But, yeah, I don't know. Like, I'm just not a Diego Lima better, so I don't want money on Diego Lima. His path, you know, maybe it's by that decision. Like you said, he's not exactly the most, the biggest power puncher himself. And, you know, beating Jumo and Court McGee, ah, Court McGee, no one's knocking him out other than Ponzinibbio, let's be real. But, you know, I just, Diego's power doesn't translate the way his brother's power, his, his brother's power has translated in the past. So if he wins, maybe it's a decision, but you know me, love decision props, love fight goes the distance. I just, I don't like it. I don't like it. So either hit a straight pass or you want an underdog. You want someone that's going to entertain you for the seven minutes that he fights his heart out. Matt Brown is that guy. So the under two and a half at plus 115, really didn't mind that. Now, that was kind of the angle I settled on this one. Can't, not every fight's going to go to decision. Hopefully, like last week, we get 9 to 12 go to decision. But, uh, <laughs> and they were still entertaining. It wasn't like they were bad fights. Yeah. But yeah, this one, I think it could be a lot more violent than a lot of people anticipate. 
I'm actually surprised to see you take the under in this spot. Again, you're you're the the resident over guy. I'm the resident under guy here. And to see it's actually on opposite <laughs> yeah, sides I know, here. I know. Who knows what's going to happen? <laughs> exactly. All right, let's move on to the next fight. We got Wellington Tournament welcoming Bruno Silva, fresh off of his USADA suspension, making his UFC debut. Um, <clears throat> uh, in terms of odds, we got Silva as a slight dog or a slight favorite, minus 140. <clears throat> Excuse me. Plus 120 on Wellington Terman. And uh, I don't really understand this line. I will say, though, that uh, somebody brought to my attention that Bet Online dropped Wellington Terman as a, as a minus 170 favorite when this line initially opened up. And then they got massive steam on, on Bruno Silva, which eventually drove uh, Wellington Terman to an underdog. Now, this is pretty much a grappler versus striker matchup, right? As quintessential as it gets. You get Bruno Silva coming in off of two massive victories, pulling off a big upset in uh, both of his fights against uh, Alexander Schlemmer and Artem Frolov coming in as a plus 490 and a plus 450 underdog in both of those fights, getting knockouts in both of them. Uh, so it looks really good there, but he still does show a lot of deficiencies in terms of his takedown defense. And that's where I feel like Wellington Terman should be able to take advantage of this fight. Now, I feel like Wellington Terman does have some question marks too, right? Got knocked out by Andrew Sanchez last time around, and you're now fighting an even heavier hitter and Bruno Silva. But what does the USADA suspension do to Bruno Silva? And what is that? How does that affect his game? Does he still have the same power, right? This is a guy that competed on the Ultimate Fighter Brazil, lost to Vitor Miranda in that first round, and then just started fucking around on the regional scene. He started his career five and five, and since then, I believe he's put together a, a 13 and one record or something like that, some crazy record where he's only had that one loss uh, to, I'm trying to recall the guy's name. It was uh, Baia Kamora that he lost. Uh, to one of these Yo, yeah, guys. Moise, Moise Rimbaud, not fucking yeah. legend. There that you go. Legend. There you go. Loses by Kamara in the second round to Moise Rimbaud. Uh, it seems like he does struggle with the takedowns, right? And I feel like Wellington Terman is going to be shooting for his life in this fight. I feel like he'll be successful with it. I feel like the longer it goes, it will favor Terman. And I feel like he'll be, uh, you know, time and time again be able to get this fight to the ground until he either finds that submission or ends up getting his hand raised by decision uh my just slight question mark is the durability of Terman. we don't see uh, people often get knocked out by andrew sanchez but i will say this i've been saying it all week so andrew sanchez seems to have that frame and that body and that physicality that would allow somebody of his stature to have knockout power if he actually goes out there and trains striking legitimately. And it seemed like he was doing that leading up to the Wellington Terman fight. And unfortunately for Terman, you know, Terman got knocked out. Sanchez is a big dude, but we know that uh, historically speaking, he only ever goes out there and gets uh, wrestles, right? But he seems to go into that Terman fight with a striking heavy approach and it paid off for him, luckily. Uh, but let's see how damaged Wellington Terman's chin truly is, especially coming into this fight with another another heavy hitter and Bruno Silva. At the end of the day, though, I'm going to go with Terman by decision. I think he grounds him out for at least two rounds, stays away from the big... Uh, power and plus 380 for tournament by decision is ooh so juicy i gotta take a little bit of a sprinkle on that and lastly tournament by submission plus 425 i think those two are the most likely outcomes obviously if you're on the silver side silver by ko plus 200 that's probably what you're going to want to seek out but this could be one of those spots that you know under two and a half could be live but i will ultimately go with tournament by decision uh like i said plus 380 i think that's a great line here for mr wellington tournament how are you seeing this one yeah, dude, I don't disagree again. And and so I hate betting fights on just the like, oh, well, what's the plus money? That's the value play. I'd rather be like, I think this guy's going to win. And and hopefully that ends up being the value play still. 
but a lot of the times it's like you're basing it on the winner. So this fight gets announced and it's like this is an auto Bruno Silva bet because you're going to give him plus money status. He is a hell of a banger. He's a big boy. Like you mentioned, he's not just winning fights. He's winning fights over in Russia and where he's bringing, brought in specifically to lose against yeah. legitimate guys like Shemenko and Frolov. Even the Gennady Kovalev fight. It's like the, those fights are frustrating, man. You look at the Frolov fight. Every time Bruno Silva ends up on top, the, the ref's like, Stand him up, no action going on. Whenever he's on the bottom, they're like, good, good. It's like, <laughs> what is going on here? He yeah. needs to knock these guys out or they're going to screw him. And he does knock them out. Now, he was finishing a lot of guys early in that first round. <clears throat> so how's his cardio going to check out? The Frolov fight, he looks really good in the first round. The second round, he, he does gas out. The third round, he's gassed out. The fourth round, he catches a second win and he knocks him out. Actually, in the third round, he caught the second win, puts him away at the, at the beginning of the fourth. That was a good performance of, this guy can carry through, but that fight's two years ago because he gets the positive test. So what version of him's coming back? I don't know. He got popped for a uh, boldenone, right? So it's yeah. not as if he was on EPO. It wasn't as if he was anything that was clearing out his lungs or you know uh, putting more you know red blood cells in his, in him. He was specifically going off for something that was a muscle mass, you know, like something that gains muscle. So. I don't know. You're probably gonna to want to watch to the weigh-ins. I don't. What I'm saying is, I don't think that drug not being in his system is gonna affect the performance. It's. It wasn't. It wasn't a game changer. It wasn't on TRT. You know, he wasn't on something like that was gonna give him a huge advantage. In fact, he doesn't even know how he got in his system. I know they all say that, but I bet you he was probably on some spotty Brazilian supplement, and a lot of that stuff has traces of it. So, you know, let's not totally fault him. But yeah, the version of him that left knocking out fools in Russia, where almost certainly they're not testing you. To this is is definitely a lot better, but the power that this man possesses as a plus money play, you would you would auto bet him, and so apparently too many people did, and now <laughs> you're getting that plus money on Wellington Terman. So I agree, it is striker versus grappler. You've got Silva that likes to strike; he's got the big power, and yeah, I mean his five losses, the six losses prior to you know hitting his stride are, are mostly against grapplers in fights where he's getting taken down. You mentioned he lost to, on the Ultimate Fighter; he fought on the Ultimate Fighter at heavyweight. All but he lost to Vito Miranda, who's a middleweight. So yeah. it's a, it was a bit of a strange season all around. Um, when you look at Wellington Terman, you know, he's more of the wrestler. He's only 24, and he's had a shoot to box in Curitiba. And he's from Brazil. Where would this man have learned to wrestle? But he does. And, and so more so than technique, which he really doesn't have great technique, is that he just muscles these guys down. And he just muscles them down over and over. And his cardio doesn't really look half bad. So you look at his run inside the UFC, the Carl Roberson fight, he gets all of the takedowns in that fight. What loses him that split decision is that he gets swept from Roberson two of the four times. And uh, outside of the third round, which is probably his best round, he probably goes down 0-2 leading into the third and uh, loses a split. But the takedowns are on point in that fight. The Marcus Perez fight, he completely dominates in pillar to post with the wrestling. And now you got the Sanchez fight. <clears throat> so interesting, they just, they just stand and bang and he gets knocked out. But Sanchez is a three-time D1 All-American. Sanchez is a former Juco national champion. Like... He don't go down quietly. And so Terman must have realized, I'm probably not going to be able to take this guy down. Let's me use my striking. And he gets knocked out. Against Silva, it wouldn't be that. It wouldn't be shit. I don't think I could take this guy down. I'm going to have to use my striking. It's like, yeah, man, he's tall. He's lanky. He's got a high center of gravity. Press him up against the cage. Get the double underhooks, which Terman loves double underhooks. And peel this guy to the ground. When you do peel on the ground, just stay heavy on him. Grind up some rounds. So... Again, when it opens up and you got Silva plus money, yeah, you almost spam that knockout. But now that it's the Terman side of things, yeah, I, I, I could see Terman just grounding him and grinding one out. From a betting standpoint, I'm not super excited, but although I will note 
the line moved heavily in Silva's favor, but the prop didn't. So Bruno Silva by TKO is still plus 200. And when you factor in how many, he's got 19 wins, 16 knockouts. Zero submissions, 16 knockouts. Guy can bang. And you got Wellington Terman, who quite literally just got knocked out by Andrew Sanchez. So at plus 200, that narrative certainly on the table. But uh, part of me recognizes what you're saying with Wellington Terman, and especially that Terman can buy decision, ground him, hold him down, win two of these three rounds. It, it, it's live. The prop that I favor more, is it a Terman by, by decision or a Silva by TKO? I ended up putting the Silva by TKO. That's where I'm sitting at right now. But, you know, I'm not above switching that come fight time. I'm not above seeing what they look at at weigh-ins. I'm not above retaping this these guys right from start to finish again. Because I'm always in, in, in the pursuit of knowledge, you know? Like, I, I, one thing I hate, people will say, if you do this, whatever, it's all good. Well, people will say, I don't switch picks. I said on Tuesday, I was taking this guy. Yeah. Saturday, it's like, you, you gotta that's be ignorant. Yeah, because you can yeah. never close your mind to new information, to new knowledge. Yeah. Shit, I just found out this guy's a lingering injury. Shit, he just missed weight. Shit, he did not look good. Shit, you know what? I did not see this one fight where he got taken down more. But you, you have to be able to have your mind open to take as much knowledge as you can. With Bruno, we know who Bruno is. He's that big power puncher. We can't just write off Terman on the simple basis of, Andrew Sanchez knocked him out. Sanchez posed a lot of different problems. Namely, you couldn't take him down. So you have to strike with him. Bruno, you don't have to strike with him. You could take him down. He's got a nasty knee right up the middle, too, because he's such a tall guy. But again, Terman yeah. with the double underhooks will neutralize that position. So uh, I, I think you're on the right path. I haven't officially switched. I am going with Bruno. I, I thought the prop to attack this one was, was that plus 200. But again, this I, I I'm I'm right on the fence, and uh, and everything you're saying to me makes complete sense. I understand it myself. I'm just like still in my own mind a, a little bit too much on this one. Yeah, the the real question mark is how does Bruno Silva look tomorrow morning, especially at the weigh-ins, considering what we've yeah. seen him look in the past, right? So that would definitely tell us a lot that we need to know. All right, let's move on to the next fight. This one should be a banger as well. We got Julian Arosa going up against Sung Woo Choi. Uh, we got minus 155 on Choi and plus 135 on Julian Arosa. And I'm really looking forward to this fight as I do believe that this one will be contested mainly in the striking realm. If there is anybody going for a takedown and looking for submissions, more than likely it's Juicy J, Julian Arosa. Rosa, but I do think that his wild, unorthodox striking uh, uh, habits are going to cost him here against a much more technical kickboxer and Muay Thai artist in uh, Mr. Uh, Sung Woo Choi. We have been seeing Choi improve on a fight-to-fight -fight basis. Obviously, his first two fights in the UFC were tough, right? Moves are evil. Who the fuck is beating that guy right now? And then, obviously, Gavin Tucker after that. But then, but then comes back and bounces back with wins over Suman Mokhtarian and uh, Mr. Z Yusuf Salah last time around, which was probably his best performance to date. Another uh, fight takedown attempts of Zalal kept the fight in the vertical range and was able to go out there and outstrike him for the majority of 15 minutes. I'm expecting the same thing to happen here where Julian Rosa will start off hot and heavy just as he always does like we saw in the Nate Landwehr fight. That's something that he's always known to do is just go out there and just try to put hell on you right away. But I think that we'll see Choi survive that onslaught, that early onslaught. And then as they start to settle into the fight, the more technical striking approach from Choi should start to take over in this spot. And I think he's going to be clipping Julian Rosa the longer that this fight goes. Arosa does this weird thing where he like he keeps his hand by his uh, waist almost, and then when he's winging his shots, he's like whipping them. Like he's turning his whole body and just whipping his hands. It's very not technical at all, but he is a veteran. He's a savvy veteran veteran who's got into the the cage thirty three times at this point in time, and it's worked out for him at least twenty five of those times. So 
who am I to tell him to change how we strike him because it's not the technical way of doing things. But when he goes up against much better technical strikers like he is here against Sung Woo Choi, he's going to pay for it. We all know, me and you know this firsthand, the straighter, tighter Christmas shots land on your target first rather than the ones that are going to be looping that what comes from uh, Mr. Julian Arosa. So I'm expecting this to remain vertical. I do think that there is a finish live on both sides here. You know, sub and KO possibilities for Julian Arosa and the possible KO possibility for Choi. But I do think that we'll see this fight similar to the Drew Dober and Brad Riddell fight this past weekend where they're going to get hit with pretty much everything. But these guys should still be chugging along, chugging forward and uh, showing the durability and the heart of a champion in terms of being able to endure that type of damage. So I'm going to be going with Choi here as I do think he's the more well-rounded striker. And I do think his uh, uh, takedown defense is getting better albeit Julian Arosa, not a great wrestler, but he does have those chops in his back pocket if he needs it. But I do think Troy will be ready to defend, sprawl on his head, and then get this fight back into the vertical range. Uh, I'm going Troy, Troy by decision, and that's currently sitting at uh, plus 190. I don't mind that line at all. I think he goes out there and uh, lights up Julian Arosa for the majority of 15 minutes. How are you seeing this one go down, brother? Yeah, agree. I agree with the pick, but how how we get to that end result definitely differs a little bit for me. Um, you have Choi coming out here maybe with a slow start, Arosa coming in hectic, and then Choi pulling away later the fight goes. I got it the other way around. I think Arosa comes in hectic, but Choi's able to intercept him for the better part of those, you know, early, probably the round or two. But I think he's going to start to break down and Arosa is going to make it greasy for him the later the fight goes if Choi is unable to knock him out. When you look at Choi versus Yusuf Zalal, which is his career best performance in the UFC, the first two rounds he sprawls and brawls him, lands the better strikes and stuffs the takedowns. In the third round though, he looks gassed, man. He, he noticeably fatigues in that spot. Mind you, Zalal's trying to mix in that wrestling, but it's also just the pace gets to him. And Zalal does not fight at a hectic pace at all. He's low output. He relies predominantly on the jab, does not really throw one-two combinations, dances to the outside, and sprinkles in takedown attempts. That seemingly got the attention of Choi and began to tire him. Gavin Tucker was able to outstrike him and then mix in the takedowns. And Movzar Ivlov, obviously, you're going to give him a pass. But th th those takedowns have worked effectively, but it's, it's that mix-in of the striking. Choi does show one knockout loss on his record. It's from a few years back. It's like 34 seconds into the fight. And when you rewatch it, like, not exactly a particularly hard shot that folds him over. He's a good striker, but he's not an end-all, be-all striker. He's got a long jab, and when you look at uh, Orosa versus Sean Woodson, mind you, Woodson's got a 78-inch reach jab. He, the jab is just money. Then you look at the, you, you think, okay, there's a path of victory against Orosa from using that jab. What I see with Choi, he extends it extremely well. They both have a 72-inch reach, but I think he's going to beat him to the punch. He's going to be able to stay on the outside. And when Orosa kind of does that dipping and dodging coming in, the more technical, effective striker in Choi will be able to have his way. But similar to exactly what he did against Sean Woodson is the more he pressures and the more he causes you to fight off your back foot and the more he causes you to engage, he starts to pull away because he's got great cardio. He's fought five rounds before. He uh, doesn't figure to tire. And again, when you look at some of the numbers in his fights, it's like he's easily able to go out there and eclipse over 100 significant strikes. That fight, obviously, the name, namely with uh, Woodson, he lands 103 significant strikes to go with those three takedowns. So it's not just a game plan about striking him or out grappling him. It's putting so much pressure on the striking department that you can mix in the takedowns. And that would theoretically work pretty good against Sung Woo Choi. Sung Woo Choi also, it's like when you look at his fights, uh, him versus Yves Loeb, he's grounded a bunch of times, so the 25, it doesn't matter. Him versus Gavin Tucker, he's grounded a bunch of times, so the 23 significant strikes landed, no big deal. They're both low output, but he was getting taken down is the Zalal fight, you know, 41 significant strikes landed. Even Sumar Mkhitaryan, stri strictly a striking battle against a punching bag, 
And, uh, you know, he looks good in that fight, but but not not great. I feel like Arosa's fought the better guys. Arosa's on a roll right now, and he's giving a good account of himself. His style is wonky as shit, but if Dominic Cruz and Tim Elliott had a baby, me and I'm Juicy J, Julian Arosa. <laughs> Why he does that stuff, I don't know. But it works for him. And quite literally, you can write back this guy's history to one problem has plagued him throughout the course of his career. He's got a soft chin. He That hasn't reared its ugly head lately. Uh, Woodson did drop him, but I mean, he recovered quite well. But uh, if he's not getting knocked out, he's a serious problem for these guys. And he got knocked out by Julio Arce, Devontae Smith, Bobby McIntyre, uh, Teruto Ishihara, Artem Lobov. A lot of these in the first round. That would made him soft. But again, at 31 years old, he's making improvements. He's coming in here on a three-fight winning streak. He's cashed two underdog tickets over some good guys in Sean Woodson and Nate Landwehr. Confidence is coming his way. And I think that he's going to be a sneaky task for Sung Woo Choi, who, although is the better traditional striker, is not used to some of this hecticness. Is not used to some of these, these, these weird angles. And I just don't think all that stuff could pose him a problem, theoretically. But uh, what I marked down as my favorite play on both of them, I didn't even pick the straight-up winner on the prop side of things is I took Fight Goes the Distance, minus 130. Choi, more of a decision guy. He hasn't shown that big power yet, and so him knocking out Julian's soft chin, maybe doesn't happen. Julian, meanwhile, he's live for a finish, but he would have to be like third-round submission. Like, he could do the same thing he did Woodson. Tire him out, hurt him, take him down, snatch up that neck. But, you know, am I going for a third-round prop, or am I going Fight Goes the Distance? Not a fight I love from a prop standpoint, but, but I suppose I would lean towards... You flatter me really quick, though. What is the Arosa third-round finish? Arosa in round three is currently sitting at plus 1,500. Oh, fuck. Ah, man. I'm too much of a degenerate. <laughs> I should probably just pass on this one. That would financially make the most sense. Uh, fuck, I want to agree. agree with you. I have Sumo Choi, but again, if we're looking at underdogs with a chance to shit in the pie, Arosa's shitting two straight, right? And again, he's, he's got that difficult style that's tough to deal with. So you can go with the traditionally better guy, or you can go with the guy that's tough to deal with. And, you know, that 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 has its own merit. The only underdog I hit on this PFL card was that Sadibu Sai. And the thing about him is that Konchenko's a good striker. Traditionally, better experience, higher level. You know, uh, M1 champion has fought in deeper in rounds. But, like, Sadibu's so tall at the weight class, and he's got a, an unorthodox kicking game that he's really hard to gauge a lot of the time. All of a sudden, you're down two rounds before you know it. Like... With Juicy J, is he limited? Yes. But when you watch him, he's super tricky. And that trickiness, again, it throws guys off. So is he going to be able to throw off Suwo Choi? Possible. But, uh, again, I always call myself a coward for not just taking the underdog or whatever. But it, it is what it is. I'm not trying to lose anybody money by saying blindly take somebody. Um, so the prop that I settled with was the fight goes the distance. But as far as a confidence standpoint for this particular fight, not the highest level. Yeah, I, I'm hoping that at least uh, delivers on the entertainment value because it definitely has the makings of that considering what we get with both of these guys here. All right, let's move on to a fight that I do expect to be fun here. We got a rematch that pretty much nobody asked for. We got Bartlett Vera going up against Davy Grant. They did first compete back in 2016 where Davy Grant was able to grind out a decision victory for himself. A lot of it came or a lot of the success came from Davy Grant taking down Marlon Vera and grinding him out. Now, that was a 23-year old Marlon Vera. Now we got a 28-year-old Marlon Vera with a plethora of experience under his belt, not to mention stepping in the cage with guys like Jose Aldo, Yidong Song, Sean O'Malley, uh, obviously a bunch of other names on his on his record, uh, whereas Davy Grant, he's only fought about five times since the last time they squared off six years ago or five years ago. So you got to believe that the experience advantage is getting 
closer, obviously, on the Marlon Vera side. But David Grant still is showing solid stuff. You know what I mean? He's 35 years old, so he's definitely getting up there in age. But he continues to be over overlooked, just like he was in his last fight, as a plus 250 dog going up against Jonathan Martinez, where he was able to really ground him. I believe he got hurt at the ending of that first round, but then was able to march back in that second round, really put it on Jonathan Martinez, start to march him down, and land the bigger and better shots, ultimately knocking Jonathan Martinez up midway through that second round. So great performance from David Grant there. But I like his ability to mix in his takedowns and his grappling to truly control fights, just as he did in the Gregory Popov fight. That was a split decision win for him, but still, it was good to see him you know, mix in the uh, striking with the takedowns and really keeping Popov on the edge of his seat. In this fight against Marlon Vera, I still feel as though Marlon Vera has those grappling deficiencies. Now, Marlon Vera kind of crafty ready has three submission victories uh since the last time he fought davy grant and davy grant the majority of his losses are coming via submission so that's absolutely a possibility for marlon vera here but tell me the last time you remember jose aldo grapple fucking somebody for the entirety of a <laughs> round and it's <clears throat> what marlon vera <clears throat> excuse me it's what Marlon Vera had to deal with for the majority of that third round last time around. You've never seen Jose Aldo backpack anybody for the majority of a round. And he was able to do that against Marlon Vera here. Not saying that Davy Grant is going to backpack Marlon Vera for the majority of a round, but that just goes to show that there are some deficiencies still in Marlon Vera's game, especially with guys being able to control him in these grappling situations. I think that Davy Grant, albeit he's not this you know crazy good grappler, he still has the strength and the ability to close the distance and ground this fight when he needs to. I don't think that Marlon Vera is this one punch knockout kind of guy so i think that david grant will be able to wade through that with his own big shots close the distance and drag this fight to the ground if he needs to i i really like david grant in the spot i was kind of surprised that he opened up as big of a uh, underdog as he was but now we're slowly starting to see the money come in and starting to even that line out it still is pretty much in the favor of marlon vera we got minus 200 for vera plus 170 on david grant but there was a time when david grant was like plus 220 plus 200 which i think is extremely egregious but the spot that i like here the most I know David Grant's knocked out his last two opponents. I think he's actually going to grind this fight out to a decision. It's probably the safest and best way for him to win this fight. So I'm going uh, David Grant by decision, which is plus 465. Absolutely crazy number there. Definitely got to take a shot on that. And if you're looking at the Marlon Vera side of things, you got to believe Marlon Vera by submission at plus 375 is a possibility of him to win. And then Marlon Vera by decision at plus 190 is a possibility as well because he could maybe go out there and out volume Davy Grant, make Davy Grant whiff at air. But I just see Davy Grant closing the distance, landing the big shots, whether it's body shots, whether it's the shots to the head. And then when he needs to, if he feels in he's in danger of potentially losing a round, let's get that grappling going. Let's try to get this takedown and let's try to grind out Marlon Vera, which has been very successful for him, obviously, in their first fight. Again, experience advantage now to Marlon Vera, 13 fights, fighting the who's who of his division compared to Davy Grant, who's apparently has a very successful restaurant he uh, owns over there in England, which is why he doesn't care about fighting as much anymore. Now he's just doing it for the fun of it. Uh, but I still believe that Davy Grant is time and time again going out there and proving us wrong coming in as the underdog in his last three fights i believe um but i still do like davy grant in the spot like him by decision plus 465 i still can't get over that line for the for the decision line because i think that both guys are durable enough for this fight to go all 15 and if you're giving plus 465 on davy grant i'm going to be taking a shot there so i like grant decision plus 465 how do you see this one yeah, I mean, I got Fight Goes the Distance, which is plus 100, but I went Vera by decision plus 190. I mean, as much as I like Davy Grant and I do like him, 
uh, I, I just think Vera's made a lot of improvements since the last time. You go and re you rewatch that first fight, and you almost feel guilty because Marlon Vera looks like a kid, man. Holy shit, does he look young in that fight? And again, he's only like 22 years old, but it's how much he's improved since then. I mean, he's had 13 fights and gone nine and four since the Davy Grant fight. Davy Grant's had five fights and went three and two. Now you mentioned the fact that. He's fighting for fun because he's got, you know, Davy Gravy back home and he's got a little <laughs> restaurant and, you know, this is fun for him. Yeah, this is not fun for Marlon Vera. He's got no. a, a sick child who has mounting medical expenses and he's desperate to give her the best life that he's capable of. He goes out there and he fights on his shield every time out. This is not, this is not, oh, this is a great way to spend my Saturday afternoon. He's out there grinding, getting in better every time out. Davy Grant also took four years off because he had a plethora of injuries. And I really think that this is Marlon Vera's time to rack it up. Now, mind you, with Grant, it's like, oh shit, man, he's looking a lot better. He got submitted by Damien Stasiak, submitted by Manny Bermudez, then he takes his little break. Those are really low-level wins, or low-level losses. Both guys are no longer with the promotion. Both guys subbed him. In the case of Manny Bermudez, Manny Bermudez actually knocked him down and then submitted him. But it's the comeback. Everyone's big on this comeback. Okay, so he beats Gregory Popov by split decision in a bad fight. He beats Martin Day. Martin Day was 0-4 in the UFC before getting cut. Martin Day also dropped Davey Grant. And then he beats Jonathan Martinez. Jonathan Martinez drops Davy Grant in the first round. Davy Grant makes a comeback in the second and knocks him out. He's not looked particularly good in these three fights. And he's fought in three very low-level guys. Marlon Vera's coming off a fight with Jose Aldo. Prior to that, he, the Sean O'Malley fight, whatever, it's a weird ending. But still, you know, he's fighting upper echelon guys. The Song Yudong fight, a fight that you can argue that he got robbed in, is just an absolute war of attrition. Both guys landing at will. You know, exchanges of just... It's a solid performance for him, and he is a slow starter, but he's really coming to his own. You mentioned the grappling deficiencies, and I got a feeling that maybe they are still there, but I will give him credit. He used to get taken out all the time. Now, anytime you see him footage of him training, whenever you see any of the features, whenever you check out his Instagram, he spends a lot of time working on his wrestling in particular. He's got Jason, um, Jason Perillo working his, his boxing. He himself is coming into his own. Now, you look at that Jose Aldo fight. So you've got Davey Grant is fighting Gregory Popov and Martin Day, and the Jonathan Martinez fight is actually not bad, really. Versus the Jose Aldo fight for Vera, where Vera takes all of Jose's nasty body shots in the first round, takes everything he's got. In the second round, he rallies and beats Jose Aldo. Now it's a 1-1 going into the third, and that's why Aldo's like, you know something? I'm just going to take him down and secure this victory for myself from uh, you know the back take position. But Jose, a guy who's a notorious striker, willing to strike with anybody in the world, has almost never used his grappling, does not want to strike Marlon Vera in that third round and opts to just neutralize him. So, again, you see where Vera's striking is getting better, the wrestling is getting better, the grappling is getting better, he's getting more experience, he's coming into his own. This is a rematch. We didn't want the rematch, but he wanted the rematch. Davey didn't want the rematch. Marlon wanted the rematch. That's why it's happening. He wants to avenge this one. I think he's in a much better place, um, both mentally, physically, and financially, that he should be able to go out there and deliver his best goods. You can't completely write off Davy Grant because, you know, he, he's a scrapper. He's a guy that has got some durability, and uh, he's got a win over him before, and, and that, that ground control was key for him the last time, so why not use it again? I just think both guys have, have changed, uh, you know, monumentally. So so the two bets I'm looking at, fight goes the distance, and the very by decision, minus 190. If I was to look at it on the standpoint of just a random example, uh, call it a unit, call it $100, just sake of round number. If I put $100 on the fight goes the distance, and $100 on the Vera by decision, then if Davy Grant springs the upset, it's just a break-even for me, right? Because the fight's still going to go to the decision. Davy Grant would have to submit him or knock him out in order to blow that ticket for me completely, and that I just do not see coming. I mean, Grant does have power, but Vera's got one hell of a chin. 
Grant does have a submission game, but Vera's got great submission defense. Again, Grant could spring the upset, but it's like you're saying, by decision, which at 4-1 to one is, is a decent-looking tag as well. But I'm not going to chase that one. I'm going to go with the Vera. Vera by decision, minus 190. And, of course, just fight goes the distance, which is uh, even money. I can completely understand the Vera side of this, even though I'm on the Grand side. I do want to quickly highlight my guy Ben's comment here saying uh, Diego Ferreira and Darius fight was five years apart as well. And Diego, uh, sorry, Darius was still able to pull off the victory the second time they fought. Again, completely different situation, completely different styles. I completely understand your aspect in terms of Vera winning this fight again. Obviously, it has accrued way more valuable experience in the time that they the last fought compared to Davy Grant, who's just been, like I said, Davy Gravy and all that type of shit that you were talking about. Um, uh, there is that absolute possibility. So I'm looking forward to seeing how this one pans out for the second time. All right, Coleman event time. We are pretty much in the home stretch of the stream. We got Alexei Olenek going up against Sergei Spivak. How these guys managed to end up in the Coleman event slot, I don't know. I probably would have been happier with Vera and Grant as the Coleman event here, considering I do believe that that's a much funner fight. Regardless, this should be a little bit of a slop fest right now. Sergei Spivak doesn't have that crazy knockout power that uh, Derek Lewis and, and uh, Chris Dalkis have. Uh, so I do believe that this might be a little bit of a, a more stretched out fight, a longer fight that could potentially go down. Uh, Spivak, when he is at his best, is able to mix in his striking with his takedowns and really maul his opponents on the ground with some solid ground and pound like he did against Jared Van Der last time around. Alexei Olenek, on the other hand, 75th fight coming right up here for him. Obviously, we know he know he likes to go out there and try to strangle his opponent, and uh, that's what he's going to be looking to do here against Sergei Spivak. The way that I actually see this fight playing down is I actually think we're going to see Spivak kind of just work behind his jab and stay in the striking realm as much as possible to kind of nullify the potential grappling advantage that uh, Olenek is going to have here. And then possibly halfway through that second round, we'll see him start to switch it up maybe start going for takedowns using his size, his athleticism, and his ability to be the stronger guy in those situations against Olenek and um, kind of just grind him out from there. Possibly a TKO finish later in this fight. I think the round three prop is plus 850 for Spivak. I don't mind that. But even uh, the decision prop, this is the one that caught my eye the most. Between plus 600 and plus 700 for Spivak to win by decision. And that's if he decides to play this fight safe, which I think he should, right? People want to laugh. Oh, Linux, 43 years old. You should go over there and steamroll this guy. But me and you both know, guys that have a very solid jiu-jitsu base, especially a guy with the level of Alexio Linux, he could still be dangerous, right? He could still go out there and, and pull off a fucking Ezekiel choke if he needs to, right? There's that absolute possibility possibility that that could happen so if i'm sergey spivak a 14 fight veteran going up against a 75 fight veteran i want to play this as safe as possible don't let alexio Linick get any of his paws on you just jab stay away jab stay away then start getting the clinching and grappling going later on when olenic starts to suck wind a little bit more so i'm stuck between round three spivak or decision Spivak, uh, but he's going to have to mine his P's and Q's a lot in this fight. So once again, like I said, uh, Spivak by a decision. Let me get that exact line here. We got uh, plus 677 on five dimes, plus 600 at a, a couple of spots, or even Spivak in round three at plus 850. I think that's a solid spot too. I know a lot of people are on the under here, which is why it's minus 145, under one and a half. I believe 59 out of the 75 fights of uh, Alexio Linux have hit that under one and a half. But I think, uh, you know, the, 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 somewhat rookie-ness of Spivak needs to make him a little bit more disciplined in this fight, needs to make him a little bit more cautious in his approach in this fight, which is why I think he's going to be very 
you know, very iffy in terms of entering any type of clinch and grappling situations with old man Olenek. So I'm going Spivak, finishing this late or getting a decision. How are you seeing this one? Yeah, I mean, I, this is a fight I don't see going the distance, but I think I would attack that over one and a half. And so again, yeah, the history goes towards Alexei Olenek all day and that he hits a lot of unders. He's 43 years old. He's got the body of a middleweight. He's been camping at heavyweight. <laughs> so much experience, so much wear and tear. Definitely a lot slower. Cardio not there. Durable, durability used to be legendary. And now you're seeing guys crack the code on him. Like, I, I totally get it. But but here's where I'm going with this, is that when you look at these are Alexei Olenek's losses. Chris Dokus is a mobile power puncher. Derek Lewis is a huge power puncher. Uh, Walt Harris, fuck man, you know, a yeah. fast power puncher. Alistair Overeem is a fast power puncher. Curtis Blade, not a power puncher, but he's very fast and mobile for the heavyweight division and a guy that just keeps smothering you and puts it on you, right? Uh, by the way, he he was on that over. Um, anyways, th those guys are able to knock him out because they're fast, they're mobile, they're amongst the biggest power punchers in the division. Alexei Olenek's chin might be gone, his durability might be gone, but again, they're matching him up against some of the best hitters in the division. Against a lesser guy, he's going to be able to take a little more damage. And the thing with Spivak, Spivak's not comfortable standing. Like, he shoots at that jab, but almost always you can see he just starts to get uncomfortable and he just wants the fight to the ground. All the fights that he's in, strike for a little bit, but eventually wants to for force the fight to the ground. As far as the fight being on the ground, his ground and pound against Jared Vandero looked way better. Like, he absolutely put it on him. And I suppose him versus Carlos Felipe in the third round, again, he gets his TKO going. Not his TKO going, but his ground and pound going. And it's probably a better third round for him. But if he's going to go out there and strike with Olenek for a little bit, doesn't have the output, doesn't have the standing punching power. If he takes Alexei Olenek down, again, he's going to have that ground and pound. But again, we got old man Olenek who's got a couple, a couple you know, tricks up his sleeve. He's a good guy at holding certain positions. He's a good guy at neutralizing certain positions. I think the more he holds on to Spivak and the more he tries to grind this thing to a bog, the more he eventually will get tired and eventually will get taken out. I could see the fight not going the distance. I could see it being the, the under two and a half, and the fight doesn't go the distance. However, I'm looking at the over one and a half. It's plus 135, and I realistically need Alexei Olenek to go out there and, and, and survive for seven and a half minutes. If for whatever reason he springs the upset, one would think it would be inside the distance um, with you know a scarf hold, an Ezekiel, an old man power submission like that, but... Again, if he was just to end up on top of Spivak and just try to lay and pray him, it, all it would do is just kill time off the clock, try to hit that over one and a half. So I'm not advocating that this fight's going the distance. This is one that I'm not looking at that prop. But uh, for, for as far as the under one or the over one and a half at plus 135, I honestly think that it at least clears that. So uh, Spivak should be the money line play, obviously. Spivak will probably end up being parlay material. The UFC clearly knows what they're doing. They've got a guy in Sergey Spivak on his way up. He's still young. He's adding skills. He's starting to rise the ranks. We need guys like that. We need to push guys like that. We need Tom Aspinall. We need Chris Dokus. We need that next generation to take the step up. And how do they do that with those guys? They give them Andrei Arlovsky. They give them the Alexei Olenek. They give them the guys that have a reputation, that have a name, that they can build off of. Alexei, at this point, two-fight losing streak. Hasn't looked good in quite some time, I guess, since the Verdum fight, which is just a bad version of Verdum two years ago now, almost three years ago now. He's in his 40s. Certainly, the end of the line is just about there for Alexei Olenek. And the UFC is not giving him a fellow aged veteran for him to go out on on a winning streak or on a winning note. They're, they're looking for someone to capitalize on that name and move on. So Spivak is the play. Uh, but Spivak by decision, don't think so. Spivak by TKO, price is not good enough on it. So I'm just going to hit that over one and a half and then use Spivak for uh, you know a couple prop bets, parlay bets here and there. Spivak round three. 
plus eight fifty. No. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I wish I had a slightly better price on it, but to be honest, yeah. I mean that that that's live. That's totally live. Him and I guess in the second round would be live as well. Him in the third round would be live. But uh, yeah, he just keeps chipping away at him. Uh, eventually, he should be able to put him down. And again, his ground and pound looked way better against Vander. Vander took some heavy shots. Yeah, Vander took shots in that fight that I don't see Alexei Olenek taking in this one. But Alexei Olenek is obviously way better on the ground than Jared Vander. So I'm hoping that he's able to at least survive for that one and a half. And then beyond that, I mean, I could see him falling apart. And we kind of assume that that's that's the route that it would take. But uh, Alexei, give me seven and a half minutes, baby. Seven and a half minutes. <laughs> it looks like we have the fourth. Big favorite on PFL actually just lose once again. We had Cesar Montanj that gives up a decision to Chris Camozzi. Shout out to anybody that took Chris Camozzi tonight. I don't think many people saw that one going down. All right. That brings us to our main event. We got the Korean Zombie going up against Danny Ige. Pretty much a pick for the majority of fight week. But now it's sitting at minus 135 for Danny Ige, plus 115 on Chan Sung Young. Probably one of the harder fights on the card to break down. Uh, but I do ultimately end up on the uh, Chan Sung Oh, sorry, on the Dan Ige side. I do think he's the faster fighter out of the two, and I think his blitzing attacks moving forward is probably going to cause Korean Zombie some issues. Now, Zombie, obviously, last time around, goes out there and loses to Brian Ortega and probably the most unpredictable way possible that nobody expected to happen, especially with Brian Ortega going out there and outstriking him for five rounds and having a lot of success even to the point of hurting and rocking a Zombie on numerous occasions in that fight. Now we got... Um, now we got uh, a heavy hitter in Dan Ige. Obviously goes out there and starches Gavin Tucker in his last fight. And if he can continuously land those big shots against Korean Zombie, he could definitely put him in some really precarious positions in this five-round fight. He was able to steal at least one round against Calvin Cater, which I think is a, a moral victory in itself considering the skill discrepancy there. But I truly think that uh, Chan Sung Yung is slowly starting to deteriorate in his skill set. He's 34 years old, and his last two wins came by a pretty quick knockout over Frankie Edgar and Hanato Moikano, but I'll go out there and I'll say this. If Hanato Moikano did survive that early onslaught, I think he goes on to win the majority of that fight. That was a five-round fight, another main event slot where I truly think that he could have put it on Chan Sung Young and showcased, the, you know, similar to what Brandon Ortega was able to do last time around. But Moikano's chin didn't hold up. Frankie Edgar's chin didn't hold up. Even Dennis Bermudez's chin didn't hold up three, uh, five fights ago. Uh, Yair Rodriguez, that was actually a solid performance, right? That was Chan Sung Young, gritty, keeping moving forward, not letting Yair Rodriguez get his fancy stuff off and then at that last second buzzer beater 20th anniversary of uh, event that night uh, pulls off a historic combat knockout that we've never seen before so poor Chan Sung Young that night but I think he ends up taking an L here again once again against Dan Ige. Dan Ige black belt as well so even if this fight gets dragged to the ground I think he'll be able to hold his own if not be better than Korean Zombie who's quite crafty and tricky himself on the ground notching the first ever twister submission inside the UFC against Leonard Garcia I'd say, what, 10 plus years ago at this point in time. But I do think that uh, Korean Zombie is starting to get to the end of his rope. And I've seen at a couple places. I want to shout out the, the, that Korean MMA reporter, John Kyo. I, I totally forgot his full name. But he said that this could potentially be the last time we see Korean Zombie inside the cage if he ends up losing. And that's a lot of weight to be going into a main event against a young, hungry up-and-comer like Dan Ige, who wants that first main event victory, and especially over a very notable name here in Korean Zombie. So 
I do think that we'll see uh, Danny Ige land the better strikes on the feet, land the more impactful shots. He's going to have to be consistent with it, especially if he doesn't turn out the lights of Korean Zombie. Because again, this is a five-round fight. He's going to need to win at least three of those, and I think he's going to be capable of it. In terms of Korean Zombie winning this fight, like I said, his last three victories all came by finish. Danny Ige is a gritty and durable motherfucker. It's going to be hard to put him out. And if Korean Zombie is not able to do so, I think he's going to be hitting a lot of big shots from Danny Ige for the majority of this fight. Ultimately, I settled on Dan Ige to win this fight via knockout, and I believe that line is currently sitting at plus three. I actually am uh, I'm off of that. Ige, yeah, plus three eighty for Ige by TKO. Uh, I'm calling specifically round three. Obviously, I could be off on that. That's plus thirteen hundred, but even plus three eighty for him to win by knockout is pretty good. Now, historically, Dan Ige hasn't been a crazy knockout artist, right? It's really been the Gavin Tucker fight where he was able to start him, and we all know that Gavin Tucker has some chin issues and some durability issues that he hasn't distanced himself from long enough. But I do think that Korean Zombie still has some durability issues of his own that slowly did come to light in that Brian Ortega fight, even though Ortega didn't end up getting the finish in that fight. But I think that Dan Ige can expose it even more and uh, crack that chin of Korean Zombie and send him into retirement. So I'm going Dan Ige. Dan Ige by knockout plus 380. Give some credence to Korean Zombie because I hate shitting on the guy on this podcast. Are you going to be back in Korean Zombie here or do you think that Dan Ige is going to fulfill his up-and-comer status and uh, get the torch from Mr. Korean Zombie? Yeah, I'm a Dan 50K Ige kind of guy. I, mean, hey. I got shit on in the Calvin Cater fight, but outside of that, this guy's <laughs> been good to me. He really has. I mean, he's improving at a very quick rate. I mean, full-time out of Las Vegas. His grappling's good. BJJ Black Belt wrestled in high school. But again, wrestling is something that he does have in his back pocket. But it's the striking that's been coming a long way. And, and, and for my money's worth, nobody outworks Danny Inge, both in the fights and in the gym. He just keeps coming at you. The Calvin Cater fight, yes, he starts to get tired. That's something that we hadn't really seen from him. Five rounds, didn't really look like it was suited for him. Calvin Cater, just too strong, too brick wall of a man, had the better striking. But still, I mean, Ige does give a good account of himself. Once the third, he wins the third round. The first two are actually pretty close, although I did score them for Cater. And then he kind of falls apart late. But that's what he needed. He needed a hard gut check performance. He needed to go five rounds. He needed to go into the deeper waters to make those improvements. He's putting it all together. He shows up in extreme physical shape. He's got great durability. People say he lost the Edson Barbosa fight. I wish he did because I bet Edson Barbosa. But he didn't. He got dropped in the first round. He got hurt in the first round. But this guy does not go away. And when he doesn't go away, now all of a sudden he's pressuring Edson. Now all of a sudden he's working Edson. Now Edson's the one fighting off his back foot, getting tired a little bit. Ige squeaked out those second and third round. He really did. I know people don't want to hear that, but it's the fact. And I think he's really definitely getting better. Now, you make an excellent point. His hands versus Gavin Tucker look legit. I mean, he hits him once. The first two punches are blocked. The third one sneaks through. And, I mean, it KOs Tucker before Tucker hits the ground. He's always had massive hand speed, some of the fastest hands in the division, but the power doesn't translate. In fact, he's never knocked out anybody. Sorry, he TKO'd Mike Santiago in the UFC. But outside of that, it was like a stretch of six decision victories or uh, decision fights, and then he knocks out Gavin Tucker. Do we suddenly think that he's a murderous power puncher now? It would be hard to base that off one fight. And with Korean Zombie, like, is his chin actually gone? Because this is a guy that's been very, very durable for a very long time. And the Brian Ortega fight, Brian Ortega hit him with absolutely everything times 10. In fact, drops him with a check left hook in the first, drops him with a spinning el back elbow in the third. Like, Korean Zombie is pretty durable. So I think that Ige, I, was, I actually did mark down the same thing, Ige by knockout plus 380. But the more I think about it, it's like, that's maybe just recency bias. Korean Zombie looked bad his last fight. Danny Ige looked good his last fight. And that's why we're making that assumption. 
regardless of that, I think Ige does get the job done. I think he does get the win. I think he's going to have more output. He's going to pressure him. He's got the faster hands. He's going to land good shots. Uh, his takedown offense is probably not good enough to take down Korean Zombie. But again, you saw Brian Ortega take down Zombie twice, have a lot of success there. So it's all possible. I I'm going to agree 100% with your assessment that I think Zombie's durability is starting to leave him. I don't think he's the same guy. And if he was to retire after this fight, I would understand it. He's had some legendary wars. He's been around for a very long time. But his best days are behind him. His three wins in the UFC since he came back from military service. Uh, you mentioned it. Hainato Makano, Frankie Edgar, and the Dennis Bermudez fight. All three of them are first-round knockouts. So yes, does he have power? Yes. And if he knocks you out in the first round, sure. But beyond that, guys are going to work their way back into it. Now the argument there is, well, the Yair Rodriguez fight, he pretty much dominated for almost 25 minutes and then gets caught in that last bit. But still, like Yair, Yair fought a strange game plan through a lot of flim-flam bullshit from the outside and just didn't attack him the way Ige figures to attack him. Doesn't land those same shots the way Ige figures to land those same shots. And the last point I want to make is that Brian Ortega was supposed to be a one-dimensional jiu-jitsu guy. Been working on his striking, been yeah. off a long time, and been working on his wrestling, but really his bread and butter is, is his jiu-jitsu. He absolutely kicked the crap out of Korean Zombie, pillar to post, 50-45, dropped him twice, took him down twice, land, took him down three times actually, landed 127 significant strikes, doubled him up, he kicked his ass pillar to post. The interesting thing is that Brian Ortega has a 69-inch reach. That he's giving up three inches to Korean Zombie in the reach department, and yet beats him to the punch every single time for 25 minutes. Dan Ige has a 72-inch reach, three, three inches longer than, than uh, Brian, but also the same as Korean Zombie. But he's got much faster hand speed. He's going to beat Korean Zombie to the punch every single time. And uh, I think the knockout is live, I honestly do. But I don't want to disrespect the Zombie like that right away. So if you're thinking it happens in the third, I can see that. What I went with was the over two and a half. I want him to be over two and a half. <laughs> so I'm hoping it happens in the later portion of the third round. But yeah, I mean, Ige might take a little bit of time to get going. Uh, Zombie, If Zombie wins this fight, I think he's going to have to take Ige into some deep waters or settle for the decision. I don't think Ige is going away quietly. And uh, and yeah, I probably would have a small sprinkle on that Ige TKO plus 380 just if Zombie is done. If this is his last fight, if this is the last time we're going to have the honor of watching him, then uh, he's been known to go out in his shield a few times as well. This could be a very entertaining fight. But I think that the future is here. And I'm not saying Ige is the future as in he's the next champion. I just mean at 29, these younger guys, they're, 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 they are coming around. Zombie is the man. He's had a, a legendary career. And he's at fight-ready MMA for this camp. I think yeah. even the last two camps he's done that. That's badass. But you can't see any anything of him training with anybody other than his guys from Korea. It's like, it's like he came with a team and they just happened to be at fight-ready. So... I don't know. I got to go with Ige. Ige's my guy. As much as I love Korean Zombie, I was thinking about putting the zombie shirt on tonight for old times. <laughs> they were so popular back in the day. But um, yep. ultimately, like uh, every every page eventually has to get turned. And uh, I think that his days at the uh, elite of the elite level could be it. Frankie's got chin issues now. Hanani Marcano's got chin issues. Dennis Bermuda's retired shortly thereafter because he's got chin issues. Those guys he hits and he puts away. Yair fights scared a lot of the time. He backs away. Max would have killed him if he didn't pull out. But um, all of that off the table, I think that the right opponent could expose Zombie. I kind of feel like Ige is that guy. So again, I think we're on the same page for a lot of these fights, and this seems to be another one. Hell yeah. Again, I thought it's a pretty hard fight to call, but we'll definitely find out this weekend, and it's definitely a little bit more reassuring that my boy is on the same side as me. All right, that brings us to pretty much everybody's favorite segment of the show is where we uh, share our three favorite prop bets. But first and foremost, 
I do want to remind you guys that tomorrow night, the ultimate Wayne show, UFC Vegas 29. We got my guy Felix Levine joining us. We got my guy John Kelly DFS uh, joining us, as well as my guy Christian. He won't give me his last name, that motherfucker, but my guy Christian, uh, he's actually leading the $25 lock of the night challenge game right now by, I believe, at least 40 units. So he's a very sharp dude, knows what the hell he's talking about, and he's definitely been getting some time in over with uh, Brian Petrie over there on the MMA Takes podcast. And uh, somebody fell out on short notice. I beckoned on my guy, Christian, and he came through and filled in that spot. So I'm very much looking forward to it. So once again, 9 p.m. Eastern tomorrow night, Ultimate Wayne Show, the final breakdown for the card this weekend. And especially with us seeing what the Wayans look like, we'll definitely have a little bit more to offer in terms of insight. So make sure you guys join us tomorrow night, 9 p.m. Eastern. All right, let's move on to our best bets i'll start things off as always first and foremost i got Jandaroba and murata going over two and a half minus 200 not often you guys see me betting this kind of chalk especially you know offering it as a one of the three best prop bets but i truly think that this line is a steal considering most often or not women's mma over two and a half you're seeing at minus 300 minus 350 minus 400 in most cases but i do think that both of these women's grappling games will uh cancel each other out we'll see you know Murata decide where this fight goes but i don't think that a finish will occur unless it's actually jandy roba by sub but even that i don't see that happening often jandy roba is a much better jiu-jitsu player from on top than she is from the bottom and i don't think that she's gonna get many opportunities to be getting her jiu-jitsu going game the jiu-jitsu game going from the top position as Murata should be able to control where this fight goes secondly i got Sergey Spivak via decision. I have to take a shot on this spot because I do expect him to play a very disciplined approach here. Plus 600 for him to win by decision, I think, is a very good line. Alexei Olenek could just roll over and die come that third round, but I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt here. I think Spivak plays it safe, which should allow Olenek to have a little bit of a better gas tank going into the third round in this spot. Like I told Cody when we were breaking down the fight, Sergey Spivak round three plus 850 is not too bad of a line considering Spivak should be the fresher fighter, but in case he does play played very safe and very disciplined and respects the game of Olenek. And again, he's not a crazy knockout puncher like Derek Lewis or or uh, Chris Delkis or anything like that. He accumulatively beats the shit out of you, and that's what I'm expecting Spivak to do. But I'm hoping that our Linux jiu will allow him to stay safe in most of those positions and cash that plus 600 Sergei Spivak by decision. And then lastly, Another decision prop for you guys. I got to go with uh, uh, Grant, Davy Grant via decision plus 465. I think that's a very solid spot. Again, he beat him the first time by submission or by decision. I'm expecting something similar, not just because that's what happened in the first fight, but I do think that Grant's ability to uh, mix in his grappling, good top position, uh, kind of nullify the jiu-jitsu that will be coming his way from Marlon Vera. He should be able to control him in those positions. And then even in the striking realm, I think Grant will land the bigger, better shots. I don't think that Marlon Vera is much of a knockout threat which is why grant will be able to kind of wade in into the pocket without much to worry about in terms of what's coming back his way and then land takedowns if he does feel like he's down on the round just to kind of secure that and sway the judges a little bit so some juicy props there we got the minus 200 uh again big play for me there with the over two and a half and then we got some juicy props with the plus 600 spivak decision and grant decision at plus 465 cody drop that fire for them Still searching for my three for three. Like, I can hit a juicy one. I can go two. I can get a fight canceled and go a two for two. But I want that three for three, baby. Kamo versus, uh, I'm going to get this, Nega Marianu. Hey, uh, what's up? What, when you say it by yourself, you can get it every time. When you say yeah. it in a sentence, you cannot get it. Nope. 
killing me. <laughs> Anyways, you know it would be perfect. This fight goes the distance, minus 140. Again, Kmore, uh, as shown in the UFC, his power doesn't really translate. He's going through the motions. He's got bad takedown defense. Nick looks terrible. We've got durability and has some wrestling. If he springs an upset, we're getting a decision. If he is who we think he is, he's getting beat up for 15 minutes. We get a decision. So minus 140, like that line. Moving on, we've got to get a little plus money action going here. And I believe it's just a plus one. No, it's a plus 130. Parisian versus Martinez. Fight goes the distance. But this one, we got heavyweight. It's going to be a little, little trickier, right? But again, we see this time and time again. It's a slow bog of a heavyweight fight. Both guys kind of get tired. Both guys slow down a little bit. These guys are not exactly known for poor cardio, but they're known for durability. Roque Martinez has fought a lot of heavy hitters, usually, you know, lives to tell the tale. Parisian's knocked out a lot of bums, but when he fights guys with some durability, I, again, you get a lot of decision. I think the first round goes down. Parisian probably, you know, lands, outlands him 2-1, to one, wins the round. Second round, he's going to start to tire a little bit. Roque Martinez is going to have some, some success backing him up. Third round, it could be all Roque Martinez, but I think it still goes to decision. You've seen earlier on the show, Manpreet said that he was going to go that flip side to that and go with the Roque Martinez by decision. I ended up going with the Parisian by decision. We're on the same page, but we're not on the same page. But what we do agree on is that decision. So plus 130 has seemed pretty good to me. And then, uh, you know, let's take a shot. We're going to go with Murata by decision. Again, you can see on on uh, on lock for Jandaroba, Murata over two and a half. There's that, that sense that this thing is going to go to decision. And I think with Murata's judo and wrestling background, she should be able to dictate where the fight goes takes place. Strike in pockets when you need to. If you need to mix in a takedown, do so. But you really got to... If you're going to the ground, just go right to half guard. And don't pull a Jamahal Hill half guard. Please don't. Like, keep your elbow tucked and go to half guard. But, like, if you're going to go to the ground with three, it needs to be a grinding position. Don't hang out in her guard. Uh, don't give her the position to sweep you. And don't shoot takedowns with four minutes left in the round. Strike. And, you know, when there's a minute left, take her down. And the chances of getting caught up in a submission at that point, obviously a lot less. But I think Murata's got the goods to uh, kind of dance around her. And there's a couple of those plus 325s that we talked about earlier in the card that you could go with if you're looking for that big plus money play. But these are the three I decide to settle on. And so, uh, yeah, if you there's anything else that you like throughout the course of the show, feel free to pull the trigger on it. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I love we all love entertainment. We all love violence. But from a betting perspective, I get equal entertainment out of seeing a decision prop hit. It's entertaining winning. So hopefully, just like last week, we get some entertaining fights. But we hit these over one and a half, two and a halfs, and uh, fight goes the distance. Yeah, if my predictions are correct this week, and I got at least nine of the 12 fights going to a decision, so strap yourselves in because I think it's going to be a long card. But there you have it. Three best prop bets for me and Cody. A little juicy on my side, a little bit more surefire on Cody's side. Hopefully, at least I can hit two out of three, and Cody can go three out of three. And I'm sure I'll be happy. Shout out to everybody that hung out with us on this Thursday evening. Hit the mute on their PFL so they don't have to listen to Randy Couture and Kenny Florian. Instead, they're going to be listening to us breaking uh, tomorrow's or sorry Saturday night's fights down for you guys from a props perspective cody i'm going to give you the platform one last time to say anything you want to do on the back end and then i'll wrap this thing up yeah i'm hoping my bad luck is out of the way tonight with pfl because these guys suck man i can't believe there's, <laughs> a, there's a million dollars on the line and guys like chris camozzi are tournament favorites like what a crazy world we live in and yeah same thing with sorty he won a million dollars last year and here he is shit in the bed why, why the ref took a point away for some punches at the back of the head i don't know but uh, these PFL numbers are stupid. Do uh, you actually think he landed 219 significant strikes? No. He's landed about 35, maybe 40. But, like, whoever's counting this shit is, hi. Because it, just, <laughs> it, it never adds up. Anyways, hopefully he still gets the job done. I want to hit at least that one ticket tonight. We're going to use the slight profit or a break even. We're going to lose money. That's always the main objective. 
carry that over to the UFC. So, my friend, always a pleasure talking fights with you. Uh, I know I said we were going to make this one hour, and <laughs> we can't always. help it, Cody. We it's can't a, help it. It's not even a good card. <laughs> I know, but I do always appreciate uh, you taking the time and us shooting the shit together. So, for everyone that takes the time out of their night to listen to us, I appreciate it. I know we had one guy said he just came home from the UK from the bar. It's like one forty <laughs> in the morning. He's like, I'm drinking and I'm listening to the best show. Like, those are hardcore fight fans. Those I love are the guys. It. I'd love to go to the bar with you and have a pint because. You know, we'd be friends. So always appreciate all the uh, the support and, you know, taking the time to come out and listen. And, uh, yeah, best of luck. I'd say best of luck with PFL, but it seems to be uh, <laughs> shitting in the pie. But best of luck for Saturday. Let's let's regroup. Let's get the shit together. And let's uh, hit some of these props and these straight money plays. Absolutely. Once again, shout out to everybody that joined us on this Thursday night. And as always, joining us every single Thursday night for UFC Fight Weeks to break down every single fight from a props perspective. So shout out to you guys. You guys are the real MVPs. If you guys haven't already, make sure you guys hit that like, hit that subscribe, and then check out Cody's YouTube channel as well, which is linked in the description below. And then go over there and hit that subscribe too. Let's get that guy to 1K before the Conor Poirier fight. If we can do that, I think that we're going to be in some good company over there. So you guys got less than three weeks to do so. So please do that. If you're watching this on the replay, again, link is in the description below. Go give my guy Cody some love over there. All right, that's it for myself. That's it for Cody. We're happy to keep you guys propped up for the UFC events. Good luck on your bets this weekend. And remember, tomorrow night, 9 p.m. Eastern, the Ultimate Wayne Show, me, Felix Levine, we got my guy Christian, and we got my guy John Kelly DFS breaking down the fights for you guys one last time. So once again, 9 p.m. tomorrow night, the Ultimate Win Show. That's where I'll see you guys next. Good luck on your bets, and we'll see you guys again next week for propping you up the last show before we get another week off, and then we're back for the big Connor and Poirier card. But me and Cody will see you guys next week, Thursday, 8 p.m. Eastern. Good luck on your bets this weekend, folks.